Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the LawCast. This time, we're going back to cover the death of WCW. It's sold out 2000. Kyush, what took us so long to dive into this absolutely insane show? Well, it's sort of like that old adage about staring into the abyss, Steve. Yeah. Uh, we've all known that there is a, a gaping, sucking whirlpool of sadness attached to the year 2000 in the letters WCW. And boy, is it going to change us as human beings to go through this process. Yeah, I think I'm going to blank here. I uh, I wouldn't be surprised. Listen, guys, this is, and I hate to like oversell the fact that I used to write a blog or whatever, but like... This is the period of time that killed Kush reviews. Sure this has did. made me quit things before. I'm scared of what this is going to do to us. Can we survive this? We'll I have think to find we can. out. It's yeah. what a decline from the joy that was 1989 Steve's version. Here's the one thing is that like I went into that season being like, all right, I guess Steve wants this. I guess we'll do this season. It's fine. I came out of it being like, this is a hidden miracle. The greatest year of wrestling I can possibly imagine from this company. Maybe that'll happen again. I don't think so. No, I don't think so either. <laughs> it, might, it might exceed our very low expectations, but man, we're going to do some weird shit. We've got, Dean Malenko forgetting the rules and rolling out of the ring to lose a match after two minutes. We've got the apple pie Indian strap match. We've got all the champions being stripped of their titles. We've got some weird stuff. Goldberg almost killing himself, smashing the limo. Like all the things that you associate as yeah. wrestle crap with WCW in its later days, we're going to go down like ticking them off in a line. Most we're gonna of it act- happened in a four month period is the thing. Yes. So like imagine watching this week to week. That's how we're going to try to cover this is like, imagine you were a person who had been a fan of WCW. I was. That was exactly. Me. This is imagine your little Steve sitting at home being like, what, what what's a, what's an apple pie match? What? <laughs> And it's up again. Man, when you think of what the WWF is doing at this time, that it's like the McMahon-Helmsley regime, the Rock's huge baby face run, Mick Foley going back to being Cactus Jack, the TLC matches, the hardcore division. It's such a rout. Like, WWE is putting on the single most watchable television product that has ever existed in wrestling. And WCW was putting on what I think it's fair to say is maybe the most wretched, ugly, disgusting product ever. I mean, it's down there with, like, the very worst of TNA, which was, of course, also written by Vince Russo. Yeah, at least in TNA they were wearing better clothes. We'll get to that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We're going to cover all that. But first, we've got three big wrestling stories to talk about. Uh, In the number one spot... What else could we talk about but CM Punk? Um, The returns of Punk and Randy Orton scored big viewership numbers as Raw's uh, viewership rose to 1.8 million. That's 400,000 more viewers than what they've been doing up against Monday Night Football this fall. Now, to be fair, that wretched Monday Night Football game between the Bears and the Vikings probably contributed. Now, this is fucking crazy, though, because I can't think of a thing that recently has really moved the needle on TV ratings in any direction for any reason at all. 
other than like CM Punk's other returns all the other yes. times. But yeah, for WWE, I'm trying to think of the last time they popped a rating. It's just, it feels like their patterns are so predictable, but this was the most watched Raw of the year other than the night after WrestleMania, which is pretty wild. Yeah. And it's very clear that it was for Punk. If you were on social media at any point during that night, it was on fire for people anticipating Punk. All like, the wrestling world turned out to see what was going to happen. Yeah. Not only with the controversy between how he left AEW, we never imagined he would be back in WWE. What, what's that going to look like? What kind of person is he going to be now? Is he going to talk about what he shouldn't talk about? We don't know. Him with a live mic, anything could happen. Of course, it turned out we, a little flat, but hey. You know. Yeah. <laughs> then we got what we got. Uh, I'm home. I'm coming home, et cetera. <laughs> Wish they'd played the P. Diddy song. He should have just wrapped it himself on the way to the ring. Um, how did you feel about it? His return? It was his flat. Ret- like, it was it was surreal to see him back in the ring. But, yeah, that return promo was really, really nothing special. It was way less interesting than either of his AEW return promos. But I guess it had to be because what's he really going to do? He's not going to get up. He's not going to get on WWE TV and shit on the Young Bucks. Like, he's not going to talk about AEW. That's just not how WWE operates. It's just so interesting to me because I don't know what the right approach necessarily would have been. But after that one promo, he's just kind of a guy there now. Like, like to see the anger, and it wasn't like vicious anger. It was just, I don't know that I've ever seen people more disappointed in yeah. a wrestling segment ever in my life. Like, there were lots of people who I don't even really think of as being general WWE fans who tuned in for that and left being like, oh, it's fine. Yeah. Also, the show wasn't very good. There was a lot of details reported in The Observer this week. Uh, they repeat, Meltzer repeated the claim that Punk's return only came together in the week leading up to Survivor Series. But he said that WWE knew Punk would want to return because he has apparently signed, tried to sign twice with WWE in recent years. One before he signed with AEW in 2021. And then after the all-out fight in 2022, in 21, WWE just wasn't interested. In 22, he was still under his AEW contract, and you know, they didn't end up releasing him from at that time. Uh, this was, I th- maybe I missed this before, but this seemed like a huge revelation that was very casually dropped in like the eighth paragraph of Meltzer's story, which is a weird pattern that he's fallen into with Punk, where he seems to just not want to report on punk news and avoid it when he can. I mean, with the blowback that he gets literally every single time he does, I guess I'm not surprised, but this completely dramatically changes the narrative of punk and AEW. Like the idea that it was the whole idea we were sold is that punk like was coaxed back out of retirement because we loved him so much. And AEW was this growing, beautiful product that he really believed in absolute bullshit. He just wanted back in the wrestling industry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can just imagine, I think for a lot of people, the pandemic was like a time they made big decisions in their life, whether it was, I don't know, getting married, getting divorced, you know, career changes, blah, blah, blah. We all had a lot of time to think. And I think Punk was like, yeah, I really need to get back in the ring. It's time. And WWE apparently turned him down, which is big news. And yeah, puts everything in a lot of different context. 
it's very fascinating that coming out of the really bad situation that that company was in coming out of the pandemic, because it was, especially creatively, they had oh nothing. Oh, my gosh. Um, to think that they were just like, you know what? No. Even though the really, all of the enmity there was on Punk's side, you would imagine. I mean, but. Yeah, I think Vin, I think Vin, because also there was another time that Fox tried to get Fox. Remember when Punk was doing that back, the show on Fox, the panel show, which was so weird. And like, we were always of the idea that like Punk would only do that show because he hated WWE so fucking much. He (laughs) would never actually sign with them. He signed a deal with Fox, not WWE. But this changes that. No, Melcher says says Fox wanted him to be on actual WWE, whether it was as a wrestler or just, you know, as an announcer, as a pundit, whatever. And Vince turned that down because it seems like Vince really held a grudge, whether it was, you know, the stuff he said about the company medical or whatever. But like Vince did not forgive in this case. But that's the fascinating part of all of this, is that we have thought for 10 years that the reason CM Punk is not wrestling is because of CM Punk. And it turns out, no, he is not the nomad rebel who walked away. He's the one guy Vince said, nah, fuck that dude, since Randy Savage. Now, that part's so interesting. It must have... to me, usually me that usually, usually Vince will do business with anybody as long as it'll make him money, so... Must not have seen money in punk. It's just fascinating because again, it it just, it kind of changes punk from this like persona that he has, that he's like the rebel who stayed away. He's been trying to get back in ever since he left. I don't know. I I don't know if I would go that far. Not, not that far. No, but like (laughs) for at least a couple years now, he's been trying to get back in. Yeah. And how different history would be. If he had signed with WWE back in 21, I don't need it. It's, I don't even want to go down the rabbit hole because there's so many things we could talk about that would have happened and wouldn't have happened if he'd done that. Absolutely. Like, and that's just wild, but let's get back to like this, what's going on right now. So CM Punk is here. We don't obviously have a clear idea of what it is that he's going to do, but what would you like to see him do? Well, I think he, both I want to see, and I think he's going to work with Rollins at WrestleMania, and then I think he's probably going to move on to a feud with Roman Reigns for either a Saudi show or SummerSlam is what that feels like to me. Yeah, if he doesn't have any moral compunctions with the Saudi shows, which yeah. I bet you he doesn't, um, <laughs> to be totally right. honest, like he's definitely working those shows because that's who the Saudi princes want to see. Yeah, it's one of those like I don't think you get to come back to this company in a featured role and not not have agreed to work those shows. Yeah, even Sammy's working them now. Just yeah, so C- Cena went back to doing it. Everybody's in on that now. You just got to deal with it. It is what it is. Yeah, the heat's off. The heat's off now. Everybody's forgotten about Jamal Khashoggi. Yeah, everybody forgot about when they were all in a big plane together wondering if they were going to die. Yeah, man, that would be a hard thing to get over. Apparently not. All right. Story number two. Um, Okada free agency rumors. A couple weeks back, Dave Meltzer reported that WWE was going to make a serious run at signing Okada. Now Sports Illustrated has reported that Okada is seriously considering signing with AEW. Like, could New Japan's top star be leaving them? I 
I don't know. I have a hard time seeing this one. I kind of feel like he's probably just trying to get more leverage with his negotiations. Here's the important way to frame this discussion. Okada's not going to go to WWE. And if he did, it would be literally the most stunning signing they've ever made in the history of that promotion. And bar none. They, you don't get the top guy of a promotion that it's whose image it's built in. Like that just doesn't happen. But more importantly, going to AEW really shouldn't be framed as leaving new Japan at all. All it really is, is like going to new Japan's American arm, right? Like, I'm going to go become an American star wrestle in America with my buddies, the bucks, and I'll see you every wrestle kingdom. You know yeah. what I mean? Like it's not the same. Yeah. He'll st- he could still work the dome. He could even do the G one if he really wanted to, I would say, but yeah, he'll still, he could still work the big new Japan shows and, you know, wrestle new Japan guys on forbidden door. So, I mean, I'm sh- if you're new Japan, you would hate to lose him, but I don't know. You can work out a deal there, and maybe AEW might even compensate you either financially or with a talent trade. It's also kind of important to note, too, that like Kota Ibushi is a good example. Obviously, he's kind of different in his own way, but he is a- an officially signed AEW talent who has wrestled four matches and is primarily in Japan the rest of the year. There's no reason Okada couldn't do that same shit. He doesn't have to be an every single day in America talent. He doesn't. He you, can live you in Japan. You don't think he should be working collision tapings in Saginaw, Michigan? <laughs> well, for wrestling perverts like us. Yeah. And let me tell you this shit right now. If Okada comes to Saginaw fucking Michigan, I'll buy his hotel room. If he's within like a few hundred miles of us, I feel like we're there. I once drove to Toronto, Canada to watch that man wrestle. Across the border? In a car. Which, by the way, did you know how fucking big Canada is? Jesus Christ, it it took for incredibly long drive yeah you cross the border in detroit and you think you're there it's like six hours to toronto yeah i have been told by everybody that detroit and toronto are like next to each other fuck me that's windsor you drive through ottawa you drive through the capital to get there no that was a bad experience but i love the matches yeah it's windsor that's right yeah windsor ontario is right across the river from detroit that's okay. I got to see Okada. I got to meet Tanahashi. I got to see Nakamura smoking a cigarette in his full gear out behind the venue. That was a good oh night. <laughs> Somehow it makes all the sense in the world that Nakamura is a smoker. He should be smoking on WWE TV. That would actually perfectly fit his gimmick. Oh, man. If he was just like in the, doing his backstage promos, like smoking <laughs> a cigarette, just like, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> Oh, I mean, we'll be talking about this more, but of course his contract is going to expire you know, at the end of January, as these New Japan contracts always seem to. I don't know, do you have a prediction right now? I, 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 I think I'm going to say he just ends up re-signing with New Japan. It's funny because when we heard about the WWE part, I took such an enormous shit on it because I was just like, of course they're interested. Yeah. Of course they'd be interested in one of the greatest of all time who's only 36 years old, but he's not coming. Hearing this, though, look, I if I had to make a prediction now, I think I would predict that he is going to sign with AEW. I could see it. It might be a short-term deal, but there's just very little downside. If he wants to try American wrestling even just once in his life, just do a year in AEW, I don't see why not. Yeah, if you were were Tony, I think I'd be totally cool with with a one-year deal. Yeah. Just to get Okada 
on your fucking TV for a year? Are you kidding? Of course you'd say yes to that. No. And Okada will sell pay-per-views. There are people who buy your pay-per-views because they have Okada matches on them. I mean, I'm going to be totally honest. I think most people who buy Forbidden Door probably couldn't name half the New Japan roster at the moment. That's right? Tanahashi's pretty washed. You might know Naito, but how many Naito matches have you really seen? Yeah. Who are you buying that pay-per-view to Okada. see people wrestle? Okada. <laughs> Okada <laughs> versus Brian Danielson sold that one. And, Ken, I mean, Kenny versus Osprey, but they have Osprey now. Right. It, it's the allure of seeing New Japan guys wrestle AEW guys. But the one New Japan guy you really want to see, that's Okada. And, again, insanely, Okada did work a dynamite a few weeks ago for seemingly no particular reason. There's just a lot of interest in Japan right now. And part of this is I I believe, like, their economy is suffering a little bit right now. So maybe they're making more money doing the tapings in America. But between, like, the Stardom Girls and the New Japan guys, there's just a lot of interest in working in America right now. A lot of them during the pandemic got to experience it, had a great time, et cetera, et cetera. So I just think you're going to see a lot more of this, whether they're just wrestling in general or doing short deals. It's just something that's out there in the culture in Japan. They, and they want to try my, it. One of my big questions is what, is, what do we think Okada makes in New Japan? I just I have no concept of how much a top guy there gets paid because at least my guess is New Japan would be a much small, certainly a much smaller company than WWE, but I would think even quite a bit smaller than AEW because they don't, have pay-per-view. Yeah, this is the incredibly complicated thing. We don't really know all of the revenue streams that New Japan has. We don't know if anybody gets a percentage of what. This has never really been talked about very openly. And what little it has been is in Japanese and kind of hard to get access to. So, like, even among mega fans, I don't know. I have a general sense that he probably makes a million dollars a year and that there may might only be like him and Naito making more than 750. Everybody else is probably down in the shits, but I don't know that. Also, I have no idea how. I mean, what when we say a million, we mean a million, like 10 million yen. Yeah, this is the thing. I don't know. <laughs> like what? And what does that translate? Like what does being a quote unquote millionaire in Japan translate to compared to being one in America? I have no idea. It's actually always been very funny because Okada is not the richest or most famous member of his family because his wife is a gigantically famous influencer in Japan. I didn't know that. It's like Tom Brady and Giselle. Oh, yeah. So, like, while he's Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. Exactly. Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey is actually a very good corollary because, like, he's a niche celebrity that people know the name of in that country, and she is someone that everyone knows the name of. So he's really, to most of that country, he's just the guy who takes the pictures for Instagram. It really was nice of Taylor Swift to put that outlaw, you know, unit, the NFL, on the map with her presence. Man, it's just very generous of her, you know. They could really needed the help, and she really stepped in and gave it to him. Who had ever who had ever heard of the NFL before Taylor Swift got involved? <laughs> All right, topic three: the AEW Continental Classic rolls on. Yeah. Um, Saturday night on Collision, Brian Danielson beat Eddie Kingston in an instant classic um, to get his first win, win his first match. Kingston is 0-2 in the tournament and very much behind the eight ball to retain his titles that are on the line. Danielson is 1-0. Brody King is 2-0. So he has six points, including a win over Kingston. At this point, 
Um, Kingston is going to need to beat Claudio Castagnoli next Saturday, or he's going to have no chance. Um, to he's out of this thing if he doesn't win. There's only you only get five matches, right? Because it's six guys in each block. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, so 15 is the most points you can score. If he loses again and he's at zero after three matches, it won't even like the most points he can get to is six. It won't be mathematically possible for him to catch up. When last we talked about this, when it was before the tournament had started, I was very nervous and leery about it because it had been handled so quickly and sort of weirdly. Um, now, uh, two weeks in, I'm fucking rabid for this thing, man. I am at, like at full pervert here. This is my shit. Every fucking inch of it. The stories that they're telling in this. Yeah. Even for the B people. Mark Briscoe being super plucky in losses. Roosh coming on strong. Swerve being the main eventer we all knew he could be. Jay White losing his fucking mind yes. after every loss. Yeah, Swerve got a huge win over Jay White. He has six points. He's won both of his matches. He's headed for a showdown with Moxley that is, I think, going to determine the winner of that block. I assume that match is going to go last. And like what they've accomplished with this more than anything, because I I wanted two things. I really wanted them to establish storylines from this that would continue on and feed their company further on. They are succeeding far beyond my greatest expectations. Even people who normally aren't even doing shit like Andrade. He's got this thing going on with Miro. There's storylines there. Claudio's got his shit going on. Everyone's doing something. Everyone's becoming a new version of their character. It's amazing. But the other thing that I wanted is for it to be unpredictable. And boys and girls, at this yeah. point, I don't know what the fuck's going to happen. Yeah, Barbie was like, oh, Kingston needs to get to the finals because he has the belts. But now it's like, is Kingston even going to get a win? Or is he going to, you know, suffer the ultimate humiliation, end the tournament with zero points? And like, see, you know, that could send his career into a spiral. Here's the fascinating thing. If they wanted to turn Eddie Kingston heel, they yeah. have created the perfect vehicle to do so. This tournament, he is riding high as a double world champion. The first time in his whole career, he could say anything of the sort, aside from, I think, the Jakara world title. Um, to lose both of those in such humiliating fashion. Yeah. And the man who can take it all away from him, the man he faces next... <laughs> Is Claudio Castagnoli. That is such greatest hobo. Yeah, the nailed it, Tony. Up against the man he hates most, and Claudio has a chance to literally finish him. Is so fast, and Claudio could fuck him just if they, even if they go to the time limit, he's done. So that's something I would love to see. Is like Claudio doesn't really care about winning because he just wants to screw Eddie over. He could literally roll like, out, hit Eddie with the chair. If he got himself disqualified, Eddie would only get two points, and that might put him out of it. Exactly. There's This is a no-win nightmare scenario for Eddie Kingston, and I love every minute of it. You can either make him the ultimate babyface and have him ride back to come to the finals and win or come up just short to swerve or something like that, or... He could have fucking fail his way out of this thing, turn heel on Danielson because you fucking pretty boy had to make this tournament happen and you took my belts from me. You could do anything. Man, there's a lot. There's a lot here, baby. I'm loving it. 
even like Daniel Garcia keeps putting on his sharpshooter way too deep and everyone keeps countering it. So he's going to eventually <laughs> learn how not to do that. Everyone's got something. On Dynamite this week, we're going to have Swerve versus Mark Briscoe, Moxley versus Roosh, and Jay White versus Jay Lethal. Winners of those all seem obvious, but maybe they'll surprise us. We're living in a magical age, ladies and gentlemen. I think at this point, it's very clear that this should be the yearly tradition for World's oh, God, End, right? Yes. Like, it's so obvious that this is exactly what this company needed. Yeah, on Collision, we'll have Danielson versus Andrade and Kingston <laughs> versus Claudio. That's appointment TV for me. The other thing, too, is like I had not watched this TV show weekly in probably months. I'm glued to the TV now. Like there's stakes like you can't miss this shit, guys. This is this is the great stuff. Here's another thing they did that's super smart that I hadn't even picked up on. They're doing one block on Dynamite and one block on Collision. I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. Yeah, yeah. that that's such a smart way to do that. And they actually kind of loaded up the Collision block more a little bit. So, yeah, yeah. I like that. And I texted you this, but my idea is I think this should be like the end of year playoff. I think they should take the top 12 guys with the best win-loss records each year, and they should be in this. Like, it would be an honor to even get invited, even to qualify would be an honor. It would be like making the playoffs in the NFL. The only complicating factor with that, because I do love that idea, is then you get, uh, like, 12 guys that it's very difficult to beat. But again, that doesn't have to be how it feels, like if you create a situation where it feels like everybody could beat anybody at any given time yeah. and everyone's fair and equal and it's okay to take a loss. These are the top, it's the top okay. guys. Yeah. Sometimes somebody's going to get into this thing and just get their shit wrecked and get totally embarrassed. And I love the stakes that that has. And you yeah. can do time limit draws if you have to, you know, if you have a match, you don't really, if one, if you have a match, you don't want to give away, you just put them in opposite blocks so they don't face each other. But if you have a match that you don't want to give away the finish to, you just have them go 20 minutes to the time on that. Yeah, that's the thing. In the G1 every year, the champion, like Okada loses every year. Jay White, Naito, everybody, everybody loses every year. No one goes undefeated ever. Yeah, it's impossible. You're never going to make it through this thing without taking a loss. And you just establish these are the best guys. So, yeah, some you're going to take some losses going through this. These guys, I, beat, these guys beat everybody else in the promotion all year. They're the best of the best. And I want them to institute the G1 rule of put the other champions in the tournament, and if you beat that champion, you get a title shot. Mm-hmm. Like, if Orange Cassidy's in the tournament and you beat him along the way after the tournament, guess who's number one contender? All right. So from something we're loving to something we hated, Ooh. let's go back to January 2000 and cover – some very dark times for WCW. The year 1999 may have been the greatest disaster any wrestling company has ever had. When you go from, they started the year, that first Nitro of the year with the finger poke of doom, where they had, I don't know, 30 something thousand people in the Georgia dome. And they did like a 5.6 rating to where they are here at the end of the year. In 99, where Starcade only draws 150,000 buys and their TV ratings have fallen into the low threes and Eric Bischoff has been fired 
and attendance has been cut in half. I don't think we've ever seen a company take a fall that hard. I don't think there's anything even remotely like it in wrestling history. No. And I don't think that there's ever been a series of changes this dramatic in wrestling history. Like, I, I, I can't even fully put into words, like, we know why the fall of WCW happens. Like, we've endlessly, we and everybody else have endlessly gone on about the causes. But, like, the actual way that it falls apart is completely unprecedented. Lots of products have gone stale and gone bad and people have tuned out. And that didn't involve them losing literally their entire audience overnight. Yeah. It's incredible. So with business sagging, they fire Eric Bischoff and then they score what seems like a big coup when they get Vince Russo to come over from the WWF in October. Russo's first pay-per-view is Halloween Havoc. Um, At Halloween Havoc, Hulk Hogan lays down for Sting in their WCW title match. And then Sting, like a dumbass, throws out an open challenge which is answered by Goldberg, who proceeds to beat his ass in two minutes. And one of the all-time great, like, Sting, you dumb motherfucker. Only Sting would do that. Yeah, somehow heel Sting is the only thing stupider than babyface Sting, (laughs) it turns out. Um, Then they announced that because that wasn't an official match, Goldberg's not the champion, But Sting is being stripped of the title, both because he lost the match and because he assaulted referees after the match. So Sting is no longer the champion. The title is held up, and they're going to do a massive 32-man tournament to crown a new champion. I actually think this tournament was a good idea because WSW just needed a reboot, and this tournament allows you to do all kinds of things and start new storylines. Yeah, far be it for me to say anything against a tournament turning a stale product around. We're literally marking out right now yeah. about that exact thing happening. However, and it, it is a good opportunity to launch new storylines, to like create a hierarchy in the company to kind of show where you think people are at. I think it's a fantastic idea. They put way too many people in it. I think there are like 70 dudes in this tournament and Medusa, who's in it like three times. Yeah, so now Medusa has two spots. The other hilarious thing, which is one of the dumbest things I've ever seen, initially titles were on the line in the tournament matches. Yeah, so if you were the U.S. champion, you had to defend the belt in all of your tournament matches. I don't remember if they got, I don't remember if they just dropped that stipulation or if they just like had the champions lose by DQ and count out or something. So they got out of the tournament, but the titles didn't change hands. But that's one of the most bizarre things I've ever seen. I almost don't hate the idea of being like one promotion, one (laughs) champion. All the, at the end of the day, if Bret Hart wins, he holds every belt in WCW, and then they just unify all of them. Like, the I don't tr- hate that. The tournament came down to Bret Hart and Chris Benoit at the Mayhem pay-per-view in Toronto. Hart got the win after an absurd amount of people interfered. It's Vince Russo, so he can't just let Bret Hart and Chris Benoit cook the way they're capable of. We have to have a bunch of people interfere in a bunch of bullshit. It's just like Vince Russo, actually, because he's like, it always seems like he wants to pick like the greatest possible wrestlers and performers and then have them do anything other than wrestle and perform. Like you, you picked Benoit for this. It's way, way, way too early for him in that spot. Way too early. But okay, you picked Benoit for this. 
The only thing he can do to get over is wrestle, and you won't let him. Well, that's the funny thing is Vince Russo, who famously hates wrestling matches, wants it like Bret Hart and Chris Benoit are the guys he wants to push, who are horrible fits for his style of wrestling. The worst fits. It's like trying to run the option with Peyton Manning. Meanwhile, the one man in this company who's an absolutely perfect fit for both his version and the other version, arguably the only man who is Booker T, is mired in whatever bullshit this is. So it's Starcade. Hart and Goldberg faced off. We know how that ended. Bret Hart got his head kicked off. Bret Hart receives like three concussions in one match. So many. Goldberg was just, something was going on with him that night. He was wrestling like a crazy person. He hit, there's so many, everybody knows about the kick. And then there's the figure four around the ring post where Goldberg doesn't grab his foot. So Bret hits his head on the, on the floor. But there's also watching the thing like three or four other live round shots or slams where you can see he got hit right in the head. It's just for whatever reason, Goldberg, I don't know. I don't think Goldberg was trying to hurt him, but like just for whatever reason, Goldberg was on edge or something. At the end of that match, Brett put Goldberg in the sharpshooter and WCW commissioner Roddy Piper came down to the ring and called for the bell, even though Goldberg didn't give up. So it was a redo of the Montreal screw job was how Starcade ended. That now means number of Montreal screw jobs performed in WWE, one. Actually, two, I guess. Two, because they did survive. I feel like there have been more. Man, they redone. I feel like they'd already redone it several times. This already seemed stale in 1999. But it's just funny that here in WCW, in the other company, they have had two out of three Starcades since it happened. Did they do the Montreal screw job? Yeah, the next night on Nitro, they had to have Tony Schiavone explain what the Montreal Screwjob was. (laughs) He explained that Bret Hart had been screwed out of the WWF title when he was leaving the WWF in 1997. And writer Vince Russo, who was now one of the quote-unquote powers that be in WCW, was one of the architects of scripting that finish. I swear to God, that's a verbatim quote. Here's the thing. Imagine how deep into the wrestling bubble you have to be to think it's a good idea to even reference the Montreal Screwjob. Understand this. Imagine like a 12-year-old boy sitting at home who does not read the fucking dirt sheets. Yeah, me. Yeah, you'd be aware that something happened at Survivor Series WWF 97 and that it was weird and uncomfortable or whatever. That was me. I didn't really know. I didn't really know. Yeah, like you said, I knew something had happened. But I didn't really, because even when they did it in the WWF, Survivor Series 98, when they did the redo of it, they didn't really explain what it was a reference to. Yeah, they were just like, oh, Vince is evil and he's screwing somebody over. Okay. To actually go through the the, the motions of explaining to fans what, how booking happens, who the owners are, who the writers are, like you are... like, you were exposing the business in such a way that doesn't even make sense. This Nitro had so many interesting things happen. Kevin Nash came out and said the office doesn't give a shit about the wrestlers. 
They don't provide retirement insurance or even pay their social security taxes. He said what happened to Goldberg at Starcade was bullshit. And he called out Bret Hart for breaking the wrestler code and screwing one of the boys. And he said, Bret's a piece of shit, which I don't know. How do you think he really felt about him? This is fascinating because like, Vince, Kevin Nash is not really known for shoot promos, but like I feel like this might be the most yeah. honest he ever was talking on screen. Amazing that Russo scripted all that to just be like, oh yeah, like the the office flagrantly screws over the boys. And I I know that he's trying to pour Vince Russo's big idea for turning this company around is not to put the bio title on Bret Hart. It's not to push Goldberg. It's to turn himself into corporate Vince McMahon. Yeah. He wants to make himself Mr. McMahon. Uh, Piper came out to the ring to explain himself. He admitted he sold out for the first time in his entire life. He announced he was quitting. Goldberg interrupted, then Brett. Brett said the heat should be on the office because they got screwed by the office, just like he did in the WWF. Brett said he was going to forfeit the title. He went back to Russo backstage. Uh, Russo says that he screwed Goldberg to make up for Survivor Series to Brett. And then Russo booked Brett against Goldberg for that night on Nitro. I. This is like a solid month's worth of story they're getting through in one night here. Like, uh, again, let's go to the Survivor Series where WWE redoes the screw job. Um, that's a month long storyline with a shocking reveal and then like six months of storylines after yeah, that. It sets up WrestleMania. Instead, this is one night. Uh, later in the show, Benoit and Jarrett had a ladder match for the U.S. title. That was a rematch from Starcade. Jarrett won in seven minutes after the ladder Benoit was climbing broke because it had been rigged too, and Jarrett smashed a guitar over his head, so Jarrett was the new U.S. champion. That seems all right. Benoit versus Jarrett seems like a perfectly good thing yeah. to be happening right now. Yeah, you, I think you can you can make it. Those are the two you know two younger guys, youngish guys you're trying to push and having them have great matches against each other. They could get over like that. Absolutely. They're workhorses in the mid-card, but they're on their way up. Like, two years from now, those guys will be pecking at the main event. Instead, what happens is six months from now, those guys will be pecking at the main event. Piper did an emotional speech to the locker room about how the wrestlers had a chance to do what his generation never did and stand up to management and form a union. This is fascinating. I know! That's a forbidden word! I never even actually knew about this. And this, listen, like Piper is the only legend who seems like he's ever really come out and said this, but it's the truth. Like Piper probably carried regrets his entire life. He was probably in the room when Jesse Ventura was trying to talk to guys about the union. He's probably like interested in doing it. And then when Hogan stooged it out, he may well have been one of the guys who was like, nah, I do my movies. I have my insurance. And then looking back, imagine how much better his life would have been if so there was something there to take care of him. But there wasn't because of him. Uh, the main event was Brett versus Goldberg for the belt. After five minutes, the ref got bumped. Hall and Nash showed up with baseball bats and beat up Goldberg. 
Piper ran in to try to protect Goldberg. He got beaten up too. Brett covered Goldberg and a groggy ref counted the pin. Then Jeff Jarrett showed up and smashed his guitar on Goldberg's head. And then they spray painted NWO on Goldberg and the music started to play. Another NWO revival, almost one year to the day of the finger poke of doom. Sometimes I like to think about like, what are, what's the stalest a stable ever got? Yeah. And there are some stale stables, man. Bullet club today. And like, there's a lot. That's a good point. The bullet club has been around way longer than the NWO was. And it, it, at its peak, it was never as hot as the NWO was, but it also never burned itself out the way the NWO did. Yeah. It, right now, it's split into like 40 different factions, so it's like a whole different thing. But this moment of the NWO, where they reunite in a big, shocking way, and the fans respond by being like, oh, fuck, again? Really? Yeah, that was me. And <clears throat> what a wretched group. Bret Hart, Jeff Jarrett. Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. One, Hall and Nash and Bret Hart hate each other. Always have. Zero chemistry. Bret, and Bret Hart in the NWO was never a good fit. He doesn't have the right personality for it. And Jeff Jarrett, Jarrett feels super sandwiched in there. All we want is to cheer Bret Hart. Why are yeah. you making this so difficult? To establish the timeline, this is like six months after Owen died. I don't yes. think Brett ever should have played a heel again after that. And he no. didn't. Know. Like, Brett is the perfect person to feud with the NWO. Yeah. Because he's like the pure hearted guy who never gave up and like has virtue. And of course he would side with the company against these dickheads. And he's fought them a million times before. He knows how evil they are. He should have been like, I may not be WCW in my heart up until now, but God damn it, I'll pick up the flag and run with it. It should have been inspirational. Fucking yeah, do Brad Express. Imagine the promo he can do where he's just like, I want to spend the rest of my career, you know, being the kind of wrestler Owen would be proud of. I want to spend my career, you know, helping out the young guys like Owen would want me to the way he did when he was a veteran. Yeah, that sounds Story incredible. tells itself. Yes. Imagine this moment in Bret Hart's career in the hands of someone capable of actually producing it. Like, just imagine you don't have to get a ton of matches out of Bret at this point, but whatever you're going to get out of him, it's going to mean something to people. Yeah. But (laughs) also he got a concussion the night before this and they made him wrestle Goldberg again. What the fuck? What are we doing? And then on Thunder, they made him wrestle Benoit. Doesn't he have like a hardcore match in here somewhere with yeah, like Terry Funk like, too? Like, yeah, he wrestles Terry Funk in a hardcore match. He's getting hit with trash cans and chairs, and his brain is just rattling around in his head. Yeah, like this is like the worst. Like they should teach this in medical classes. Like, hey, what's the worst thing you can yeah. possibly do to your brain immediately after a concussion? Well, you could wrestle three wrestling matches in eight days and hit yourself in the face a million times. You know what that'll cause? A stroke. The December 23rd episode of Thunder was the one where Goldberg almost died. Oh, God, yes. Here we are. They do an angle where he's chasing after the NWO, and he finds their their limo in the parking lot. And he goes 
to smash the limo. He goes to smash the windows with his fist. And I feel like every person who talks about this tells a slightly different version of it. Cause I think at this point, nobody even really remembers exactly how it was supposed to go. I think some people say some of the windows were gimmicked and he was just supposed to break those. Some say there was like, there was a pipe or a hand sledgehammer or a bat he was supposed to use and he didn't use it. And I think what's right is I think he was supposed to have like a pipe taped to his wrist yeah. But he like dropped the pipe after he smashed the first window and then proceeded to just keep using his fist, punch shoot punching through the windows until he cut himself open. And it's sickening when he slams his hand on the hood of the white limo, you see his blood just spray everywhere. It's like a cartoon. Yeah, here's the thing about punching through glass. If it's not the kind of glass that's meant to break up into little pieces, what you get if you break through it is shards of glass. Yeah. Think of how hard a car window is. Think of how hard the windshield of your car is. Like how many like how many times you've been driving along and like a rock has hit it and it didn't break. Now, kudos to Goldberg for being the kind of guy who's strong enough to punch through it. a car window. Because that's impressive as shit. Yeah. But Again, you he punches so far into it because he is such a badass that the it, it literally just spikes into his wrist veins. Hey, to anybody who may have had a traumatic teenagehood, you know what happens if you slit your wrists? Bad yeah. stuff. According to Goldberg, he was about a centimeter from losing his arm. I mean, yeah. yeah. I believe he doesn't just punch it, too. Doesn't he, like, elbow it, too? Like, he, like, yeah. goes nuts on well, this thing. He doesn't just – it takes him, like – he has to hit this – he has to hit each of these windows a number of times before they break because, again, they're really hard. Also, just one more thing. It's the winter. It's cold, which makes it even harder. Like, this is a dumb segment. Let, let me just be clear about this. If you gimmick one window on a limousine and have Goldberg run up and punch that shit into pieces, that's pretty cool. Yeah. To have him do it to like 20 windows, why? Just stop. Just do the one. On top of that, in the same segment, Brett peeled out of the parking lot on ice, skidded, and nearly hit a production truck. Thank God it was Brett behind the wheel and he's from Canada and he knows how to steer through a skid. In his book, when he literally says, like, yeah. I realized at that moment, what the fuck are we doing? Like, we are not stunt people. He wrote, uh, like, the week after this, he wrote this really long and interesting. He wrote a new, so he had a newspaper column back then in the Calgary newspaper. He wrote a really interesting one where he said, like, you know, somebody asked me, is wrestling real? And he was, and he stopped and he thought about it. And he's thinking about the, like how much he's gotten beaten up, how hurt he is, all these stunts he's doing, how dangerous they are. And he's like, at this point, I don't know anymore because this is so far removed from what I kind of get from what we used to do. Imagine the trauma of the shock in that moment when like you get out of the skid and you're okay. And then you realize like, this is literally what just killed Owen. It's yeah. literally, I could have just died doing the same dumb shit that my brother got talked into. Like this is a night in one night. It is plausible that they could have killed Goldberg and Bret Hart. Vince Russo could have written their deaths. That's not a joke. That's real. On the December 27th, New Year's Evil edition of Nitro, 
Scott Steiner came out to do a heartfelt retirement speech because of a back injury. How do you think this ended? Uh, with him walking away and becoming a mathematician. Exactly. Now, how many fucking times did they do this? Of course he ended up joining the NWO that night. God. At <laughs> least he's a fit. You know, what should have happened is he should have thrown all the other jabroni yes. weirdos out of the NWO and created a new NWO. Because he's the guy who should be leading this generation. Nitro on January 3rd, Terry Funk was announced as the new commissioner of WCW. Weird idea, but honestly, I awesome. kind of love it. Like that, yeah. that That's the perfect kind of thing. If you want this product to seem different than it did before, Terry Funk is different. Uh, the January 6th episode of Thunder was where he wrestled Brett in a hardcore match. Um, last match of Brett's career until you know he came back to the WWF in 2010. And you might say, boy, like, what a weird match to be the last match of his career. No, him having the worst match in WrestleMania history against Vince McMahon <laughs> as the worst ma- as the last match of his career is way weirder. <laughs> Uh, Nitro on January 10th, Funk brought out Arn Anderson, Larry Zbysko, and Paul Orndorff to protect him. That's a group he dubbed the Old Age Outlaws. The Old Age. That kicks. Bringing out the enforcers, man. (laughs) You would not fuck with these dudes. They've got old man strength. I love the idea of these three guys just like rolling into a Denny's and seeing a fight break out and like cracking their knuckles and taking off their Rolexes and being like, it's time to get the gang back together. I think we got to do a thing where we got to figure out how old they actually were at this point, because it's going to be surprising that they were. Okay, Funk was 55. He was legitimately pretty old. Yes. Arn can't have been that old. Arn is only 65 now. So Arn was 40. Guy, he was Arn, only 40? Arn was younger than 90% of WWE's roster here. What the fuck? Are you serious? Yeah. yeah. Holy shit. Arn, Arn's born 58. He was 41. Uh, Zabisco, born 51. He was 48. He's a little older. But again, like, same age as a lot of guys who still wrestle regularly these days. And yeah, Orn, Orndorff's two years older than Zabisco. So. Okay. So, like, everybody, Arn just looks old. Everybody other than Arn is actually pretty old. I do love the idea of Arn just being, like, this old man ass kicker. Like, he's not he, – just because he's not old just makes it work better. <laughs> it just means that he can actually get in there and kick some ass. When he was 20, he looked 40. He's just one of those dudes. The fact that they played him as Ole Anderson's brother yeah. when Ole was 20 years older than him was very funny. <laughs> oh, man. So on that night, Funk forced Jarrett to wrestle three. This is like wrestling Mad Libs. Jarrett <laughs> had to wrestle three times. He had to have a pure wrestling match. He had to have a bunkhouse brawl and a steel cage match. Each one would be against a different legend. The bunkhouse brawl was against George the Animal Steel. <laughs> the wrestling match was against Tito Santana, who actually looked pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. And the cage match was against Jimmy Superfly Snuka. 
See, here's the weird thing is that, of course, these are who Russo chose because to Russo, these yeah, are these the are legends. Guys. But this is WCW. They, the fans don't know these fuckers. These aren't their legends. And if you T- had gotten dusty for the bunkhouse brawl, that would have ruled. Tito was 46. Snuka was 56. George Steele was 62. God, that's wild. Yeah, George Steele was in his late 40s when he was doing the stuff with Macho Man and Liz back in 85. That's so fun. But he did so such little stuff that he was in relatively yeah. good condition. I mean, it's not like he got beat up his whole career. In the cage match, Snuka hit Jarrett with a superfly splash off the cage, and then Benoit hit him with a diving headbutt off the cage. Somehow that gave Jarrett a concussion, if you can believe that. He takes two bumps from people jumping off the cage. Also, who's letting Snuka jump off the cage? Not their insurance company. I can guarantee you that. They didn't run that by them. Holy shit. 56 and he's jumping off the cage. Do you think this was the last time he did this? Or do you think he did this at an indie show? I'm sure he did this for like an order of Dippin' Dots and a $5 bill at like an Alabama indie 10 years after this. He it, it went badly towards the end. So they were building to Brett versus Sid for the title, which is a perfectly respectable main event. But Honestly, the, I'm all in for that. But the Thursday before the show, Brett uh, called Russo to tell him he wasn't going to be able to wrestle because of his concussion issues. He was having headaches. His doctor told him not only could he not wrestle, but that he shouldn't even fly. It wasn't safe. After he's been like traveling and wrestling for a month straight at this point with a concussion that didn't heal. Man, that's crazy. Yeah. Now, this is why he had to retire. If they had just let him rest and he probably I mean, I don't know, maybe he shouldn't have been traveling, but he probably would have been okay if they hadn't had him wrestle all those matches right away. If they just let him rest for a few weeks, I think he probably would have. I don't know if he would have been fine, but I'm sure it would have been better. Right. Now, of course, what they probably should have just done is just not had a world title match on this show. It's sold out. Who cares? Just have the Kevin Nash funk match be the main event and do your Benoit Jarrett. Or I guess you can't do Jarrett. (laughs) (laughs) The next day, Jarrett calls and says he can't wrestle because of his concussion. So we're down the world champion and the U.S. champion. And Benoit and Jarrett were supposed to wrestle three times, so that was going to be like half the pay-per-view. But here's the thing. There's still there's 12 matches yeah. on this show as constituted. If you take four of them away, it's still eight matches. Yeah, there You could have made this work. Like, you could have just done do an eliminator where, like, the winner of Nash versus Funk wrestles the winner of like Sid versus Benoit for the title and just put the belt on Sid or put the belt on Nash. That would have been fine too, but we'll talk about why Nash didn't want that in a second. God, there's just so much going on here. And of course there's the other element to the Benoit thing where the reason that Kevin Sullivan starts pushing to give him the belt is just so people will take the heat off of Sullivan that he's in charge now. It is at least what the radicals believed about the whole thing. Infamously, Russo wanted to put the belt on Tank Abbott. I'm going to say something crazy. No, no, you can't. 
I don't think he should have done that. No. But oh no. Looking up and down this roster at this you, precise moment in time. You have Sid. Put the belt on Sid. I mean, I agree with that. I agree with that. I, there are better choices. Yeah. But I'm just saying the words left his mouth and he was fired before he was done saying them. <laughs> they were literally just like, get the fuck out. And I'm not sure it's that crazy, but it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. At this point, Bill Bush makes the decision to demote Russo and make him part of a booking committee rather than the head writer. Russo refused that and just went home instead. Which is probably, which is the right thing to do for him. Like they yeah. were going to fucking job him out. There's no yeah, way. Make a, is it, th- yeah, he gets to come back to being head writer in a couple months because he just quit here. If, if they'd put him on the quote-unquote committee, he would have just, yeah, they never would have used any of his ideas. Yeah. So I want you to imagine that you're Bill Bush for a second. You've just had to fire the guy that you gave the keys to the kingdom yeah. to. In six months, he's driven every measurable so far into the ground that you don't know that this can ever recover. Everyone's mad. Everything's wrong. He almost killed people. He wants to put Tank Abbott's toothless grin on every poster for WCW. You fire him. What the fuck are you going to do now? (laughs) Why didn't they call Dusty Rhodes at this point? That's a good question. Dusty? I can't remember if Dusty's still there or not. I think he is. I think he is. This is only, I think he has like a match at some point around here. <laughs> sure. He definitely, actually, yeah, I think he does. I, yeah, I, I might've just, put, but failing that they, they, they put together a committee. Sullivan is the head of it. It's also got JJ Dillon, Terry Taylor and Bob mold. Who the fuck is Bob mold? I have not the slightest idea. Some, he's from music or something. I've no, I think Kevin Nash got him hired cause he liked his jokes. Here's the thing that there's nothing wrong with Kevin Sullivan. Obviously he burnt himself out booking the NWO, but he did a great job booking that he's done good booking in the past. The rest of that committee is the shittiest group of fucking assholes that I've ever heard of. This is a terrible committee, but Sullivan's decision to put the belt on Benoit just to keep the heat off of himself is also insane. Stupid as hell. Like I'm a, I, I was a huge Chris Benoit fan. Even I was kind of confused by the whole thing at the time. Like, if you want to put him in this match and Sid beats him, but Benoit gets to look plucky, okay. Because yeah. he's not ready for this. Yeah, no. Like, he's the kind of guy that you'd be like, oh, man, he gets a title shot that he loses. But one day, man, that Benoit is going to get there. But not now. This is fucking stupid. He beats Vicious, Sid Vicious ostensibly clean in the middle of the ring. That's insane. Reportedly, 15 to 20 wrestlers confronted Bush on Saturday, Saturday, saying they didn't want Sullivan as the booker. Benoit, Malenko, Kidman, Shane Douglas, Eddie Guerrero, and Conan all asked for their release as if Sullivan was going to be the booker. Conan claimed he was speaking for a bunch of the other luchadors, but I think it turned out that was bullshit. Well, to be honest, here's the thing. Conan at one point was speaking for all the luchadors, but we're a couple years in now and they have their own deals. They can speak English now. Like Conan is no longer the only like path to WCW. Uh, They had to come up with something for the pay-per-view reported ideas included flair, Hogan and Nash winning the title. Nash reportedly turned down the belt because he didn't want to get all the heat he would get from that, from the other boys. 
And he's right. He would have. Absolutely, he would have. It's still the right call because you got this new NWO faction. You should probably keep the belt within it. And they make a big deal on this show of Terry, like Arn Anderson very specifically like points at the belt and says like, God damn it. They got control around here, but you won't get this. This is the real power. If they get this, we lose everything. So of course you have them get it right. Like Kevin Nash should beat Terry Funk in this match and then immediately declare himself the world champion. Of course, we know Sullivan decides to give Benoit the title. Are you of the theory that he's just doing that as a political thing? Because I am. 110%. Again, there's no, it's not like, if it was like Kevin Nash versus Sid Vicious, and he had this backstory with Nash, and he put the belt on Nash, maybe you could believe that, like, no, I just think that's the right decision. No one in their right goddamn mind thinks that Benoit holding the belt is the right decision here. It just doesn't make sense. They're just trying to get, they're trying to stop Benoit from quitting and try to quell the rebellion. Yeah, Benoit is the head of, the rebellion starts because everyone's so mad on his behalf. It's not like all the other guys were necessarily put down by Kevin Sullivan. It's that literally Benoit starting to make it, they love him. You're really going to put the guy who hates him more than anyone in the world in charge. That's insane. The guy who was sent home because of human resources violations he was committing against Chris Benoit. Yeah. I guess we should just make clear the situation. Chris Benoit stole Kevin Sullivan's wife. And he's at this point, he's living with her in Sullivan's condo in Daytona beach. And Kevin Sullivan booked himself in a feud against Benoit during and after that. And then continued being really creepy about it for a long time afterwards. Yeah. Uh, It's one of the, I mean, of all the crazy things that have ever happened in wrestling, that might be, this this whole Benoit Sullivan saga might be number one on the list. I don't know. I think it might be the number two one even involving Chris Benoit. Yeah, fair point. (laughs) All right. So before we get into the show, somehow... There's going to be a lightning round. Did, oh, I, I like, wait, man, I mean, this whole thing has been one big lightning round because of, when we've got George Steele and Jimmy Snuka and Tito Santana showing up. It, like the recap is the lightning round. I feel like this is the longest we've ever gone before hitting the lightning round on a show. I feel like we're like 40 minutes in already, but fuck it. We got to do the lightning round. Let's go. Roddy Piper tried to use a baseball bat to smash a TV screen, but couldn't do it after 10 swings. TV screens are hard, man. Everybody (laughs) thinks that you can just like put your foot through it or whatever. They're built to last, especially the old ones. The varsity club was brought back. Kimona Vaughn from ECW was their valet in a cheerleader outfit. I love how all characters she had to play had to be purely fetishistic. Like, literally, they find this woman who's, like, a stripper in, like, some strip club somewhere, and they literally just bring her around to dress her up in cosplay. It's fucked, man. This is a bad industry. It's just like, okay, you can be a cheerleader, a geisha, and a dominatrix. Or naked. Pick one of those four. (laughs) Or do a striptease like Heyman had her do. The way that they... I don't, I don't, not to go on a tangent, but like the way they describe that night. So there's a night where like they can't put on a match or something like that. And the crowd is so yeah. restless. And there's a bunch of like angry, violent dudes. 
And so they send out this woman to do a strip tease in the middle of the ring to calm them down. And the reverent way Paul Heyman talks about this, like that's not the most despicable thing you could possibly do is to feed this woman to the wolves to save your own life is insane. Brad Armstrong was given a gimmick as quote unquote buzzkill in which he impersonated his brother Road Dog. I never understood why buzzkill, but I also know it's a weed reference, isn't it? I mean, it is, but like it doesn't track. Because Road Dog did a whole because Road Dog did lots of drugs. I mean, yeah, but it's difficult to imagine Brad Armstrong doing lots of drugs because he's Brad Armstrong. Jeff Jarrett wore a Frank Wycheck Tennessee Titans jersey in Buffalo two days after the Music City Miracle. That's heat. I don't know how this man got a hold of this jersey that quickly, but nobody knows heat like Jeff Jarrett. He God might, he damn. Might have had one. He's a Tennessee Titans fan. Wycheck was one of their best players, and he's oh, a yeah, wrestling what? fan. Wasn't he in TNA? Yeah, he actually did some yeah. physical stuff. He had a match, I think. He had a match. We did a show that he wrestled on, I think. Yeah, man. Um, Meltzer reported that King Kong Bundy, Honky Tonk Man, and Bob Backlund turned down appearing on that Nitro that the Legends were on. Bob Backlund would have been hysterical. Honky yeah. Tonk Man would have been quadruple hysterical honky tonk man being like i'm the real guitar maestro and smashing his guitar on Jarrett sounds awesome and king kong bundy in 1999 i love that idea you got a cage match against king kong bundy pg-13 debuted in wcw I did not know that this ever happened. I completely forgot. Me too. For those who don't even remember these two chuckle fucks, you might remember them mostly as the two random white guys in the Nation of Domination. Yeah, the white rappers from the Nation entrance. They were actually just uh, like a junior heavyweight tag team from Memphis that like did that. But they were a fairly decent tag team. But like, yeah, they never did shit after the Nation. Meltzer reported that WCW German announcer Tom Gerhardt had been popular as a comedian in the late 1980s for an act in which he would dress up in a penis costume and ejaculate on the audience. Boy, that's some real avant-garde shit. How did how did Dave Meltzer even find out that that had ever happened? <laughs> what kind of what kind of perverts are subscribed to the Observer and know about this stuff? You have to wonder. I just. Doesn't that sound uniquely German? Is to like go out yes. on stage and be like, I am a penis. Now I ejaculate on you. Haha. <laughs> Do you think this is where Russo got didn't weren't wasn't there wait, am I confusing something that happened in the original TNA with something that happened at all in? Uh yes, I believe so. Or maybe well, not. No, no. Oh. The original TNA also did have walking yeah. penises. That is correct. They did. And was there a penis at all in? Uh, I believe there was like a like a bunch of people dressed in penises who like carried Hangman Page around, wasn't there? Jesus Christ! It, it involved Hangman Page stunningly, considering he became a huge star after that. Conan was booked to lose to Jerry Flynn on house shows. They were trying to get him to quit. No, nah, man, they're pushing Jerry Flynn. They're giving him a big push. 
Kenzuki Sasaki defeated Tenru to win the IWGP title in the main event of the January 4th Tokyo Dome show. This is a bit of a dark time. As they in got 2000, to the late, man. They pushed the shit out of Sasaki. It doesn't quite work the way they want it to, even though he's like the perfect image of like a, a, a Noki's style of wrestler. The fans just kind of want something a little bit different. It takes them a long time to figure out what it is. And finally, the hammer. Bret Hart was asked to do a stunt where he drove a monster truck to crush a car that Sid was in, and thankfully he refused. They were probably going to make Sid actually sit in the car for fuck's sake. Like, they I don't give that a was, shit. I think that was the idea, that they were telling Bret, like, okay, when you do it, you need to just drive on the hood of the car. And Bret's like, I don't know how to drive a monster truck. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Just imagining them being like, all right, you got to fly this F-14 real close to Sid, yeah. but don't, don't hit him. Like, what do you mean? I don't know how to do this. I'm not Steve Austin, the master of all things with wheels. They still did the stunt, but they had a stunt driver drive the truck, and no one was in the car when they ran it over, thankfully. I want to imagine them pitching that to Sid. So, like, so wait, so then, like, I get out and then you do it with like a body double in there, right? Like, no, 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 no. You stay in the car. And then we run you over with a monster truck. All right. So to get into the show, it's Sunday, January the 16th, 2000. We're at the first star center in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, It's a good crowd. It looked sold out. (laughs) 14,000 in attendance, but it was half paper. They only sold about 7,000 tickets for a $250,000 gate, which the the 250s are actually a decent gate for this time. But yeah, having to half paper your pay-per-view is not what you're looking for. It is a bummer, but like the crowd is enthusiastic. The gate isn't too bad. Obviously, Cincinnati is not like an A town, but like... This is pretty good. And it's sold out. Like, sold out has never been a successful show, even during their peak. So, like, this really isn't that embarrassing. The show does a .26 buy rate for 115,000 buys. All right, that's a little embarrassing. (laughs) Down from 330,000 the previous year for Goldberg versus Scott Hall in a stun gun match. In a stun gun match. (laughs) And on commentary, we've got Tony Schiavone, Mike Tanay, and Bobby the Brain Heenan, all thoroughly in their don't-give-a-fuck era. I want to say this. We've said numerous times before that people were checked out, and especially these three were. I have never in my life heard announcers who give less of a shit about the show they're calling than Schiavone and Heenan do here. Heenan is openly not watching the show. (laughs) The opening where the announcers just have to explain what the card is going to be and all the changes. You can just see their spirits leaving their body as they're doing it. And when they finish, like Tanae and Shivani are both like, okay, we did it. We made it. Let's get on with the show. Shivani, like on at least three occasions says, I didn't know that before right now, but okay. <laughs> So I guess we didn't say it's Benoit versus Sid for the title and Kidman is going to wrestle in three different matches. 
he's going to wrestle in each of the three matches that Benoit and Jarrett were going to have against three different opponents. I am going to give them a little bit. I'm going to give them a little bit of credit for this because Kidman is already feuding with the revolution. Yeah. Because they've already taken out like Conan and Mysterio. So like that, that was already going to be a match on this show. So they're like, Oh, well it's already one on three and I got to fill three matches. Why don't we just pivot to that storyline being the three matches? It's still stupider than just not doing three matches for no particular reason. But if you have to, at least they found a storyline way to make it work. I'll give them credit for that. And I forgot to write down who somebody got beat up in a backstage segment while this was going on. And I don't remember. It was a David Flair crowbar. Yeah, it was Vampiro. Uh, David Vamp- Flair and crowbar jumped Vampiro. Okay. <laughs> and as a result, they make that match a triple. Th- I don't know. Maybe it was going to be just Vampiro versus David Flair. And they realized that was a bad idea. So they add crowbar into the match because he can actually wrestle. That match is listed on Wikipedia as a handicap match, but I got to be clear. It is a triple threat match. Yeah. This matters. Truth matters. Yeah. Uh, Opening match. We've got Dean Malenko versus Kidman in a catch as catch can match. This was previously billed as dungeon rules when it was going to be Benoit versus Jarrett. So the idea with Benoit Jarrett was first they were going to wrestle in Benoit style match dungeon rules. And then they were going to do like a Tennessee rules bunkhouse match, which would be Jarrett style of match. And then if necessary, they would go to a third match, which would be in a cage. Which um, is a WWE style match. Cause it's just hell in a cell. It is hell in a cell. We'll talk <laughs> about that. Um, if I were booking this, I would have said I'd have Jarrett actually win the pure match to put Benoit's back up against the wall and then have Benoit win the bunkhouse match to get to the cage match. I wish they had just called Jarrett's match like the Memphis bullshit match because yeah. that's really what it is. Um, so they had promoted there would be no ropes for this match, but they decided to drop that, I think, sensibly, because it, 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 I guess you could, if you put it on first, there's no ropes at the beginning. And then I guess you can go to like a video, you know, a backstage promo and a video package and have time to get the ropes up. But there's really no point to it. I mean, all you really have to do is, like, keep the ropes up, but just say, like, you can't grab the ropes. Like, you can't leave the ring. Dungeon rules means you have this much space yeah. and it's pins or submissions. That's dungeon rules. You win by pinfall, submission, or knocking your opponent out of the ring. Yeah. Though there is none of that in the dungeon because it's just a basement. Yeah. There's no knocking someone out of the ring. You yeah, don't they- get away. They did a dungeon match in the WWF between Owen and Shamrock. And yeah, it was just them wrestling in the hard basement. Which is so fun. The dungeon is so legendary. The reason it's called the dungeon is because you couldn't get out. He would take you down there and stretch you until you wanted to die. And then you couldn't escape. Hilariously. In one of the funniest things I've ever seen in pro wrestling. Two minutes into this match, Malenko, like, powders, intentionally rolls out of the ring and thus loses the match. He just flat out forgot the rules. And on autopilot, he did the heel thing. You know, Kidman hit him with a drop kick and he rolled out of the ring to get heat. But that's the end of the match. 
the, the announcers are still explaining the <laughs> rules of the match when this happens. It was it's really probably, funny how insistent Shivani keeps being like, the match is over. That's the end of the match. Malenko's getting back in the ring, but the match is over. It's over. He can't do that. Somebody's got to be in his ear being like, nope, dumb fuck did it. We're just going to call it. That's what <laughs> that was, it is. That was Kevin Sullivan. Yeah. I just imagine, do you think Kevin Sullivan was mad or was he just laughing hysterically backstage like that dumb motherfucker? <laughs> At this point, what can you do but laugh? Like... Yeah, Malenko gets, Malenko gets back in the ring, and then the bell rings, and he's just like, wait, what? What, what do you mean? <laughs> you can see on his face how embarrassed he is. Like, he has botched the shit out of this. This him, was supposed to go, like, ten minutes. Yeah, him, Dean Malenko, the technical prince, the king of pure <laughs> wrestling. general. Oh, God. The other thing, though, is... Yeah, if you were a smart fan, you had to think they were doing like an I respect you Booker man thing here because they've been doing that kind of stuff. Like every show, somebody would lay down or there would be something like that. So I'm sure people that ran through everybody's mind. But the other thing you would think is like maybe Malenko just like did this because he was just like, fuck it. I don't want to wrestle. Like I'm quitting. I don't want to wrestle this match. But by all accounts, everyone says he just fucked up. <laughs> that is so fucking just, funny. Somehow to me. worse. I feel like I would have tried to put the word out there, like, "Oh no, he told Sullivan to fuck himself." No, he just messed it up. Jesus. Um. Then we go backstage for a brief interview with Vampiro. He's interrupted by Masachono. What the fuck is happening? Okay. Let me paint you a word picture. Vampiro is being interviewed. It's a terrible interview. Whatever. Vampiro can't talk. <laughs> then in off the side screen comes Masachono, like looking unbelievably cool. As he just says in like some like his best English, like I am Masahiro Chono. I am here from Japan. I'm the greatest. And then it just like fades out on him and goes back to the announcers who don't reference it. And I'm like, what the fuck was that about? He is not seen again on this show. It's literally as if he was just there visiting and he just ran into the interview and introduced himself. He is around a little bit after this. I I mean, I don't know. He's on his break after the Tokyo Dome, I guess. I got to tell you, at this point, he is the top star in New Japan. He's <laughs> a big deal. Like getting Chono. Chono's a guy who could have made... Probably not a huge difference from you for you, especially at this point. But he's got talent and charisma for days. You could have done something with him. <sighs> mean Gene interviews David Flair, Crowbar, and Daphne. These two dipshits are the tag team champions. I forgot to mention something. Um, somebody was stripped of the tag titles. Can't even remember who had them. They did a lethal lottery to crown new champions. A lethal lottery with random partners? And these guys won, even though they were already, yeah, they were, you know, randomly drawn together, even though they were already a tag team. I, okay, Steve, I'm going to need you to explain to me what the fuck is going on with these three. Are they, is it some kind of polyamorous thing? So it starts out that, like, David Flair is with Stacy Keebler, but then he leaves her for Daphne because he's crazy and into goth chicks which is I fine mean, i guess look, uh, da- look there's nothing wrong with that <laughs> you know different people can have different prefer- preferences daphne is the one part of this that is working let's oh just be God, clear God. about that 
Um, well, I was I was and am a big Daphne fan. Yes, uh, it's unfortunate that she has passed on. Uh, I didn't know but, that. Yes, unfortunately she did. Uh, rest in peace, Daphne. We love you. Uh, Daphne and Crowbar make sense as part of a group. David Flair is doing this thing where he they're meant to be like crazy, destructive, weird vandals, right? Yeah. David Flair is doing this thing where he's like, oh, I need to communicate that I'm crazy. <laughs> yeah. That's not an exaggeration. It sounds like this. <laughs> I don't get that shit, man. Are they both banging Daphne in storyline? I think the implication is that Crowbar isn't into anybody. <laughs> okay. Except his Crowbar. I honestly, if you told me that Crowbar's gimmick was that he is a like a Crowbar that got transformed magically into a human being, I would believe you. Because that's sort of the idea. <laughs> It's amazing how athletic David Flair's siblings were and how unathletic he is. I know not a lot of people have probably seen much of Reed Flair's work, but he was like, I don't know that he was ever going to become great, but he was immeasurably better than David. And he was a very good amateur wrestler. He was a champion amateur. Obviously, Charlotte is an yeah. tr- unbelievable athlete. Obviously, Charlotte made a great pro wrestler. She was also a Division One volleyball player. And then there's David, who became a police officer, but not an especially good one. And he's just a guy. Can you imagine being in a family like that of unbelievably decorated heroic champions? And then you're just a guy. (laughs) That sucks. So I assume they added time to this to make up for how short the first match was, which is why it went 10 minutes. It goes forever. Vampiro gets double teamed. Eventually he makes a comeback and then he pins Flair with a brain buster. It's not very this good. Is the third longest, this is the third longest match of the night. Like that's, that's not good. <laughs> Gene interviews Johnny the Bull, Big Vito and Disco Inferno. They're the Mamelukes. Okay. Now, if you go back into the archives and you listen to our Starcade 99 show, you will remember that we fell passionately in love with little Tony Marinara and his mafia goons. Because <laughs> this is a great gimmick. It is. I do love the idea of, like, the dipshit mob boss's son is a really big wrestling mark. Because, hey, that's something that's played out throughout wrestling history, isn't it? That's definitely a very <laughs> real thing. It's the most realistic gimmick ever in wrestling. And Big Vito and Johnny the Bull look exactly like Mafia Enforcers. You got the douchebag with the abs who's super into himself, and you got the big, mean, angry dick. Uh, We've got the Mamelukes against the Harris Brothers. The Harris Brothers were previously billed as creative control and called Pat and Gerald, but they seem to have moved away from that, thankfully. I will never... For the life of me, understand how the Harris brothers keep getting work. Putting aside, and it's like lifting an anvil and trying to put it aside, the fact that they are openly white supremacists. Neo-Nazis. They got the tattoos and everything. Is the fact that they're They're just... They're super shitty, not that big, bald, ugly dudes. It's just... They're nothing. They are literally a zero... And yet they just keep getting work. 
It's another 10-minute match. Again, they probably had to add time to it. It felt like they added time to these first couple matches to fill in for the time they didn't get out of Kidman and Malenko. It's probably important that we mention that the white supremacists are the baby faces here. Oh, just of course. So, just so Wait, you guys they know. are? No, it's not. not Big Vito and Johnny the Bull. Is this heel versus heel? Are there really any? Are there really faces and heels in this company at this point? Yeah, that's a good I question. Think, I don't think the Harris boys are faces. The Harris boys were the muscle for Russo, and right. now, like they're after this, they're going to be the muscle for the NWO. But I don't think Big Vito and Johnny the Bull are at all meant to be baby faces either. And by that token, I don't think Vampiro, David Flair, or Crowbar <laughs> are baby faces, or did. So Billy Kidman is thus far the only baby face on this program. Let's keep track of that, shall we? Who's an actual baby face on this, this is, television This is show? good. We keep forgetting to play a game. That could be yeah. the game this week. Who actually manages to be a baby face? Billy Kidman is a baby face. Good for you, buddy. The finish here comes when one of the Harris brothers goes to pile drive Johnny the Bull. Vito goes to the top. Disco pushes him off, but Vito lands on the Harris brother with a crossbody and gets the pin. So looks like Disco was trying to turn on his guys, but he accidentally helped them win because he's a dumbass. So I initially thought when I saw this, because the, the story at Starcade was that he had gotten into gambling losses with the mafia guys, and so they put him in a body bag and threw him off a bridge or some shit. Also very realistic. I was like, what if Disco started betting on the matches yeah. but against Johnny and Vito? And yeah. so he's trying to rig the matches so that he wins enough money to get away from them. But they just <laughs> keep winning anyway. He's point shaven. But he just keeps getting further in debt because he keeps accidentally helping them win. <laughs> Oh, man. And amazingly, here in the year 2023, you can now actually bet on wrestling through DraftKings. It's legit and everything. You can be Disco Inferno yourself, except you're not going to get into Hawk with the Mafia boss just into whatever shady corporation owns DraftKings. Uh, Next up for the Cruiserweight title, we've got Medusa defending against Oklahoma. (sighs) Of course... Oklahoma is the odious Ed Ferrara doing a Jim Ross impersonation. By this point, they've really toned it down. When it first started, he would like twist up his face to mock JR's Bell's palsy, but he got so much heat that he stopped doing it. Here, you could tell he's really walking on eggshells. He's like barely impersonating JR at this point. They should just call him Ed Ferrara at this point. Like, just change the name, change the whole thing. Let me say this here. I, I don't think that this is something that should be happening. If only because like, we'll get to the finish and how fucking stupid it is. Obviously this is yet another thing where he's like, I'm an untalented man who's never wrestled a match before, but of course I can beat the most decorated women's wrestler of this era easily with my eyes closed. And then of course he fucking does it. But like, he's not that bad in this role aside from the Jim Ross part of it. Like, I think he could be a heat-hitting manager. Yeah, he was a wrestler. He was an indie wrestler. Yeah, when you see him in the singlet here, I'm actually like, actually, he's kind of in wrestling shape. Like, it's not that bad. Uh, Medusa comes out wearing a Ken Blackman Tampa Bay Buccaneers jersey. She was married to him at the time. I was wondering about that. I'm like, what a pull. What a very random pull. 
was going to say, I'm a pretty serious football fan. Do not, did not remember Ken Blackman. Doesn't ring any thoughts. What are your thoughts on Medusa as cruiserweight champion? I think it's a good idea, actually. I think it's a good way to freshen up this division that had gotten a little stale. I've always thought that the answer to intergender wrestling is the cruiserweight championship. Like, because they're never going to, like, the problem everybody has is like, oh, I don't want to see Sasha Banks wrestle Kevin Nash or whatever. Like, okay, then don't. Yeah. Have the people wrestle, have women wrestle people of similar size and skill to them and just do that. Medusa's better than the people you have in the cruiserweight division. She's more experienced. She's a better wrestler. She's bigger than most of them. Thankfully, they keep this short. After about three minutes, Oklahoma goes to the floor to grab his bottle of barbecue sauce. But he's cut off by Asia, who's one of many China impersonators they have on this show. Back in the ring, Oklahoma catches Medusa with a schoolboy and gets the pin. And thus, he is the new cruiserweight champion. I can't believe Sullivan didn't change that finish when he got the book. It's outrageous that this goes forward as planned. Because there's just so much about it that's stupid. Again, to have a heel be like, all women are inferior and shitty. And then to have him beat her clean is astonishing. With a wrestling hold. Yes. I think he was actually trying to do the Oklahoma role and he just fucked it up. Um, To have it be, to have somebody who's like 300 pounds win the cruiserweight title is dumb as shit. He's not a wrestler. Like, it's just, none of this works. Like, why? So at this point, the champions in this company, the world title is vacant. The U.S. title is vacant. Who's the TV uh, champion? I think it's been deactivated. I think they got rid of the TV title. I think it's been deactivated. Wait the a minute. So you're telling me that the two <laughs> biggest singles champions in this company are Oklahoma and Brian Knobs? Yeah. And no. The, and the tag champions are Crowbar and David Flair. Fuck off. It's quite literally the worst set of champions in wrestling history, I think. I diff you at home to produce a more vile selection of champions ever created gene then interviews brian knobs oh after the match the girls pour the barbecue sauce all over him including down his singlet cool i guess sure gene interviews brian knobs and then we've got the quote-unquote for the hard way match for the tv or for the hardcore title we've got Brian Knobs defending against Norman Smiley, Fit Finley, and Ming. I don't hate the idea of this match. They were really in love with the For the Hard Way tagline to yeah. the point where, like, I almost like, did somebody sponsor that? Is that somebody like. I thought that was really clever. Yeah. Like, look, you have created this hardcore division basically around Norman Smiley, Ming, and Fit Finley, and this uh, rotating group of a bunch of other assholes who come in and out. And it's pretty good. Like, that's really the saving grace of these shows. Yeah, I actually, I have these matches both, like, they're pretty light fare, and Smiley is hilarious. But yeah, I had no problem with this hardcore division. I thought this was a good addition to the show. They just needed to spice things up a little bit in the mid-card. Absolutely. I don't really have any problem with it at all. Smiley hilariously comes out in riot gear. 
God damn it, Norman Smiley, you make me love you every time. Uh, not a very eventful match. Nobbs gets the win after six minutes. I'm glad they didn't go longer than that. Brian Nobbs and Fit Finley have made their look so similar yeah. that I kept forgetting which was which, which is a shame for Fit. I guess they've been doing a thing where Nobbs was mentor or Finley was mentoring Nobbs. I love the idea of 50-year-old Fit Finley mentoring 42-year-old Brian Nobbs. Yeah, this is also after Finley almost died when a table cut his leg wide open and he almost bled to death. Sheesh. <clears throat> Next up, we've got our bunkhouse brawl between Kidman and Saturn. Now, Steve, what is a bunkhouse brawl? Well, Kyush, in the old West, the men folk would live together in a bunkhouse. And sometimes they'd have problems and they'd go outside and they'd have to settle their problems in a fight. And they'd be wearing their shirts, their jeans, their suspenders, their long johns, their boots, and they would have a brawl. And that was the bunkhouse brawl. Can I just say that the many, many times we've done this joke is we've beaten it into the ground. The way we all pronounce Janes is my favorite part. (laughs) Somehow we've never done the bunkhouse stampede. Never. We've never done a bunkhouse stampede. Should should we? I don't. It's just going to be. Okay. If we do it, I'm calling the shot now. We got to do the whole thing in those accents. (laughs) All right, Steve, let's talk about this Dusty Rhodes finish. <laughs> and then Road Warrior Hawk is going to wrestle Ric Flair for the world title. But let's not talk about the match. Let's talk about what they're wearing. They're wearing <laughs> jeans. <laughs> well, they printed the wrong time on the tickets for the show, so the crowd didn't show up. <laughs> <laughs> it's a real thing that happened. There is. <laughs> oh they probably shouldn't have put this on right after the hardcore match right no i don't think they should have seems like it seems like an oversight to me especially since this is nowhere near as hardcore or interesting as the match we just saw which also wasn't very interesting oh no, there's really does anything hardcore happen in this entire match there is a belt okay there's a belly-to-belly suplex over the top Threw a table on the floor. That was an incredible spot. But that's also just the kind of shit that was just happening in all of these matches these days. Saturn would just do crazy stuff in all of his matches. Didn't he just start putting himself through tables like Sabu used to around this time? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, In the ring, Saturn went up to the top. Kidman threw him off. Saturn tried the powerbomb. What do you think happened? Uh, I'm pretty sure he countered it. Yeah, this actually had become Kidman's finisher at this point, was the powerbomb into the face buster. So the key to wrestling Kidman is to not to try to powerbomb him, because that's the setup to his finisher. That's so fascinating, the idea that he can't beat you until you try to powerbomb him. He baits you into trying to powerbomb him, and then he beats you. Now, I do love this. Like he I literally remember, just like bends down and is like, come on, don't you want to try to powerbomb me? Put my head between your legs. Here's the best part about this. And maybe could have been the ticket to a main event push for him. Who are the top two stars in this promotion right now? Kevin, Kevin Nash, Nash and Sid. And Sid Vicious. The Who can the they, bomb. they can't beat him. They can't. He can keep going for the powerbomb and getting countered over and over again. 
Uh, this was a, this was a really good match. This maybe this is one of the better matches. I mean, I don't know. I, the back half of this show was all right, I'd say, except for the next match. It's funny because it's a shame that all the people in this company who can work a fucking match are all about to leave on mass because yeah. those people did just fine. Well, Malenko didn't, but those <laughs> people do just fine tonight. Oh. Then they play a long video of Stevie Ray in the hood talking to people saying Booker doesn't come around there anymore. Yep. And Booker kept forgetting lines that he had written for himself and then being like, oh, yeah, and another thing. Oh, wait, before I go, I got to say this. Do you think so in kayfabe they're from Harlem, but in reality they're in Houston? Do you think they just shot that in Houston? Because it those just seemed like people Stevie Ray knew from Houston. I'm sure they did. I don't see like if you're putting Houston on TV and calling it Harlem, how many people watching this do you think can genuinely tell the difference? No, no one watching this show has ever been to Harlem. No, <laughs> not even Booker T and Stevie Ray. Probably not. All right. We've got Harlem Heat Explodes, Booker versus Stevie. These two split like split up at the end of 97, and this is, to my memory, the first time they're having a major singles match. I mean, that does make sense. Booker was uh, injured for a lot of 98 and 99, unfortunately. It is funny how, like, Booker got his run as a singles, and then he got hurt, and then Stevie got his turn, so now this is the match. You would think ostensibly that that would be like a, something satisfying that would happen. It's not. You would be wrong. Yeah, Booker makes his comeback. He hits the scissors kick, and then the bookend, and then an incredibly fat Ahmed Johnson runs out and attacks Booker. Man, Ahmed has been hitting the buffet line hard. This man is large. This man looks like if you, like, tried to inflate a tire and just floated him into the ring. Like, I don't... Like... He's like, it looks like he's rolling when he's walking. It's pretty fucking crazy. He's still got the definition in his arms, so I think yeah. he's still lifting, but clearly not doing his cardio. Here's the thing. We can be as mean as we want to to Ahmed Johnson. Like, when he gets in the ring and he's still wearing, like, his shirt and stuff, he still looks pretty cool, to be honest. Like, oh, he looks big he and jacked Booker, as fuck. He hits Booker with the Pearl River Plunge. This might be the best Pearl River. Oh. He doesn't just hit it. He lifts him up and just, like, sends him up into the air and then spikes him down. I've never seen him get air like that on the Pearl River Plunge. So yeah, this is the debut of Big T. Why did they have to name him Big T? Because they had to feud over the letter T. But no, no, they, no, <laughs> I, let me correct you there. No, they do not. <laughs> they did not. <laughs> well, he's, uh, he's Tony Norris, Big T. Listen, like, I think the idea of being like, all right, Stevie, we tried him as a single, so it's not quite working. We want to get Booker out on his own, but we still want to have Harlem Heat. We need him for the tag division. Let's bring in Ahmed, team him with Stevie. That's a cool tag team. Honestly, I think that's a good idea. I like it. It's worth a shot. But this, the way they go about it is ridiculous. Big T. Next month. 
they're gonna fight for the letter T. That's it's a match that's so memed and made fun of <laughs> that it almost doesn't feel real. <laughs> so many it's just like the incredible feeling of stumbling upon one of those insane things that you've always heard about. It's like seeing a cryptid in the wild. You're just like, oh, God, it's real. It's a thi- it, like I, I always heard, but I never believed. Gene interviews Sid. Sid is upset to be facing his friend Chris Benoit, but, you know, title's on the line, so he has to do it. Finding out that this is a friendship respect match was very disappointing. <laughs> yeah, they've been, you know, hanging out, fighting the NWO. It's just difficult to imagine Sid. Sid helps, Sid helps Benoit reach things on high shelves. Th- that's the thing. First of all, I now badly want to see a, a tag team between Chris Benoit and Sid. Yeah. Former Horseman members now set free. Good point. Good point. I, I just, I love the idea of like, on this show, they should have been like, nah, it's Nash and Steiner versus Benoit and Sid. I would have gone crazy to see that match. <sighs> And then we've got Tank Abbott versus Jerry Flynn. Shoot fighters going one-on-one. This is a match perfectly designed basically for Steve, because Steve is the only Jerry Flynn fan I think I've ever found in the wilds. Man, I bet Jerry Flynn did some awesome stuff in UFI. Let's be clear about this, though. The one thing Vince Russo does deserve credit for is Jerry Flynn and Tank Abbott get a full, like, three-week-long storyline where they're feuding, like they're knocking over security guys to try to get to each other. Jerry Flynn gets arrested for uh, hitting a security guard. So Tank Abbott punches a cop in the face so he'll get thrown in the same jail cell so they (laughs) can fight each other in jail. Remarkably, someone in WWE saw that and sat on it for like 20 years, and then they did it for the the women's main event of WrestleMania with Rousey and Charlotte and Becky. Oh, God, that is the same shit, isn't it? Yeah. Whoa. Uh, This one lasts about two minutes before Abbott knocks Flynn out with a big punch. Could have been the world champion tonight. Instead, he was doing this. I at least understand where he's coming from in terms of you. If you're establishing for months that this man, as crazy as he looks, can knock out anybody with one punch and does so often, then it is not completely out of the realm of possibility that he could knock anyone out with one punch. Okay, fluke thing, and then you get the belt off him the next day. Again, not saying it's a good idea. I just get where he's coming from. I mean, do you think they should be pushing Tank Abbott? Do you see no. potential here? Yeah. He looks like he lives under a fucking bridge. No. He was He's a like, decent MMA fighter. He had a little bit of success. He had a lot of power. He'd knock guys out. But he, yeah. when he would fight somebody real, he would get beat. Let me just slightly correct you on that. He's not an MMA fighter. He's a throwback to the early days yeah. of UFC where it wasn't mixed martial arts yet. It was just martial arts. It was like karate guys fighting guys who were like sloppy drunks in an alley that would try to punch them in the face. And Tank Abbott was the best trained of those dudes. He was really the last guy who was able to even slightly get by in MMA by just like trying to punch you really hard in the face. Like if you tried to take him down, he'd be like, what do you No. <laughs> Next up, we've got DDP against Buff Bagwell. Oh, God, the backstory to this one. I think I got this straight. Okay. 
They're feuding because Paige is jealous of Bagwell because he heard that Bagwell made a pass at Kimberly, who Bagwell said he would really like to hook up with, but he didn't actually. But Kimberly indicated she might be into it, I think. Buff Bagwell doesn't really come off that bad in all of this. Because Buff Bagwell says, like, no, I'm just friends with Kimberly. Like, we hang out sometimes. Sure, she's hot, but I'd never date her because she's your wife. Yeah. That's exactly what you should say. As if that's a deal breaker in this promotion. If you ask any of your friends right now, like, would you bang my wife? And their response is, well, not while she's your wife. That's that's a perfectly fair response. (laughs) Uh, It's a last man standing match. They fight on the floor and through the crowd for a while. We forgot to do the who's the baby face thing. There hasn't been one since I last said that. That's Maybe, okay, point. Booker. Booker's yeah, been Booker, a, Booker, Booker. Booker's a true baby face, but yeah. yeah. Not Benusa, not Oklahoma, not Knobs, not Finley, not Smiley, not Ming, not Saturn, not Stevie. <laughs> Jerry Flynn, Tank Abbott. Not DB, Bagwell, Bagwell. Who's going to chew Buff Bagwell? What a scumbag. After all those times, he, like, mocked his neck injury. Yes. At one point during the build to this, DDP is just like, Buff Bagwell, lots of girls like him, but guys like him, too. Which is funny. But that's not the same as saying Buff Bagwell likes men. You're not calling him gay. You're just saying... Everyone of every disposition wants to fuck Buff Bagwell, which is not the burn you think it is. Stupid, sexy Bagwell. (laughs) Um, Now they fight up to the WCW.com table by the entryway and Mark Madden and Scott Hudson or somebody have to run away. Waddle away in Mark Madden's case. Yeah, fuck Mark Madden. They both grab computer monitors and chuck them at each other, and they, like, collide in midair. And Tony Schiavone says very quietly, I don't think that's ever happened in wrestling before. (laughs) No, I don't think so either. Um, Was this some kind of in-joke about the internet? I think it was, yes. At one point, uh, somebody, uh, I think Paige hits Bagwell with the keyboard and all the keys fly out. Yeah. And Tanae and Shivani like scream, yeah, yeah, kill the internet. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, they what they should have just done is like had like the Dave Meltzer's newsletter printed out on the desk and been like, yeah, hit him with the rag sheet, brother. <laughs> this is a rag sheet, brother. Oh, trying to get my coworkers to start using the phrase rag sheet. It hasn't, rag really, sheet. Hasn't, <laughs> hasn't really worked yet. I'm going to make like a, a checkout for getting towels out of the lot, the, the linen lockup and just be like, yeah, you got to sign the rag sheet, brother. <laughs> Bagwell puts page on the table. He climbs up the set and jumps down on him. That was actually a cool spot. This is probably the biggest high spot buff Bagwell ever performed. Yeah. Um, back in the ring, they keep knocking each other down, but getting back to their feet, it occurs to me that like, maybe this match can only end in the ring. Cause I don't think the referee was counting at all while they were outside. Interesting point in WWE, you can get counted out outside, but maybe in this match, no Bagwell hits the blockbuster. DP gets up. Bagwell pulls a baton out of his boot and beats him with it. 
Now that's interesting, especially for who's supposed to be the baby face here. Uh, DDP makes it to his feet and he hits a diamond cutter. He collapses. They, um, they say Bagwell grabbed the ropes to block it. And Bagwell is the one who gets to his feet to win the match. All righty. This was decent. The finish wasn't great. This might be the best buff Bagwell match ever. I'm like pausing to think if anything else comes to mind. I can't ever remember seeing a good buff Bagwell match. Honestly, this might be it. Yeah, this is perfectly fine. Kimberly comes down to the ring and the announcers speculate as to who she's really with. This is exactly, exactly, exactly the same storyline that they did with the booty man. Yeah, that's Where right. Kimberly would come down and stare she, at his luscious booty. She was the booty babe. Yeah. Next up, we've got a cage match between Kidman and the wall. Not just a cage match, a caged heat match. A caged heat match, for those wondering, is just Hell in a Cell. It is yeah. exactly, exactly the same. Yeah, they built themselves a Hell in a Cell-sized cage, and then they use it for this bullshit. Steve, I don't think this has ever happened before in the history of our podcast, but I'm going to ask you to paint me a word picture of what the wall looks like. Um, Like a really tall... And even bigger Scott Steiner, but wearing like a cheap suit that like somebody bought for a job interview because they didn't have any suits and a clip on tie. Somehow he has no presence whatsoever, despite being enormous. Oh, he's so big. Like after this match, he goes up in the aisle to like uh, a fan and he tries to like do like the thing where he like stares him down and scares him. And the fan is like, who are you? The fan is like, let's fucking go. He's trying to get over the rail. He tries to climb the rail to fight the wall. That never happened to the undertaker. Let me put it to you that way. Where the hell is Doug Dillinger in all this? (laughs) Doug Dillinger comes flying out from the side to hit him with a baton. Yank him off, yank him down off the cage like he did Sting that one time. Jesus. Uh, yeah, it's a Hell in a Cell cage, and they're just going to use it for all their cage matches, I guess. It would be fascinating if it was like, let, I'm going to make you name all the Hell in a Cell matches, and you have to name this one. Because it's I have the to wall. name the caged heat matches. <laughs> That's the wall, brother. Again, The most important thing about the wall is that Hulk Hogan saw him. And apparently the only thing Hulk Hogan thinks that you need to draw money is to be six foot six because he did the same thing with Abyss. Yeah, but he looks at the wall and Abyss at various points and says, oh, that's a money guy, brother. I can draw money with him. No, the fuck you can't. Shane Douglas goes on a, does a very overly long promo announcing that Kidman's opponent is the wall. Also, for some reason, the lights are like violet, so you can't see anything. (laughs) Although they they wrestle for like a minute with the lights down, then clearly Sullivan is like, turn those fucking lights back on. I can't see. We can't see a fucking thing. (sighs) 
So I guess I forgot to mention the revolution originally were young guys like banding together against the old guys. Now they've been changed to being like anti-government extremists. Well, of course, because I, I guess who should have been in the revolution? Not Shane Douglas. I think we can all agree on, on that. No, um, Shane the problem is a scumbag. And the there's two baby faces originally. The revolution at this point are Dean Malenko, Perry Saturn. Is Benoit still in it? No, they kicked Benoit out. So it's Dean Malenko, Perry Saturn, and Shane Douglas. If you take yeah. Shane Douglas out, who the fuck is cutting the promos? Because it ain't the other two. Like, and then it's just a tag team. Honestly, they should have just done Dean Malenko and Perry Saturn as a tag team. That would have been just fine. You know what got way more over than this match was the fight that was going on in the crowd. That was extremely funny. Poor <laughs> Billy Kidman. <sighs> Billy Kidman's been busting his ass tonight to do his best. He's taking all sorts of bumps and shit. This was supposed. He must have gone into this being like, "This is the night I become a star." Nope. Sorry. <laughs> no one cares. Oh, Wall wins in five minutes with a choke slam. Meltzer complained that Kidman lost this match, but I thought it made total sense that he loses to the wall after he's had two matches already tonight. Well, it would make more sense if the first match had actually been strenuous in some way, because really he only had one match tonight. <laughs> Good, Fair point. Next up, we've got a hardcore match between Terry Funk and Kevin Nash. If Nash wins, he replaces Funk as the commissioner of WCW. If Funk wins, the NWO has to break up. I looked it up, and I I researched. I'm not going to say I went thorough, but I looked some stuff up. This might be the only hardcore match Kevin Nash ever had. Uh, him and Shawn Michaels had a no DQ match at Good Friends Better Enemies. That is true, but I don't, that, that, that's a tenuous line. But like, this is not something Kevin Nash does. No, not frequently. All. He looks so uncomfortable. Um, did you see the clip of Funk branded Nash with a flaming cattle brand? That kicked that was wild. I can't believe the fire marshal let him get away with that. They must have bribed him. Terry Funk's character is that he's been brought back to be the commissioner, and he is now, in in his words, middle-aged and crazy. And it's just like, I'll fight any of you young motherfuckers. I don't give a fuck. I, you, this is really like a caricature of what people thought Bill Watts was as yeah. the person who ran WCW. <laughs> Actually, yes, it is. That's great. If they like, they should have done a promo with him pissing out the window at like, uh, Turner. Oh, Funk barely made it to this show. He got stuck at the airport. Um, after he he had wrestled earlier in the day at an indie show in Marquette, Michigan. That was a booking he'd agreed to before he signed with WCW. Amazingly, I think he was signed as like to fill in for Goldberg because they brought him in right after that. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. So if Funk's not here. Goldberg Nash, I think. Because Goldberg probably would have been on this show before he injured himself. I mean, if you're doing a world title match, you got to have Sid in that one. So, like, I guess in the brett goldberg again right but like 
Yeah, you couldn't have just slotted Nash in there. Fuck, I don't know. This is a mess, man. Yeah. Uh, Nash beats on Funk with a chair outside the ring, and then he jackknifes him through the announce table. I wonder if this was like a almost like a moolah situation or like Nat. Do you think Nash was just like, man, I really don't want to powerbomb this old ass man through all this shit. Dank on that. I wonder if Funk was just like, you old, you young motherfucker. You better fucking spike me. You egg sucking dog. As he's going through the table, your mother's a whore. <laughs> Nash gets on the mic to talk shit as Funk tries to get up. He tells Funk if he can get back in the ring, he can stay as commissioner. Funk does it, but then Nash says he lied. This is some A-plus mean bully shit to do. (laughs) He's just like, come on, Terry, you can do it. Come on, get in the ring, we'll do it. Yeah, about that. I lied. (laughs) That's fucking awesome. Nash beats on Funk with a chair. The crowd starts chanting in the face. They chant in the face. The face. That's crazy. Funk makes a comeback. He gets some shots in. Nash cuts him off, hits him in the head with the chair. Funk fights back again. Nash cuts him off and then power bombs him through two chairs to get the win. This is wild. It's just weird to see Kevin Nash in this environment, you know? You're forgetting his sledgehammer ladder match against Triple H at TLC 2011. I, of course, am forgetting that. You are correct about that. The match that is the most miraculous ever in wrestling history that no one got hurt during it. I thought this kind of ruled. Meltzer called it disgraceful. I wish this had been the main event of this show because I thought it kicked ass and could have used five more minutes. Yeah. Uh, We see Benoit and Sid warming up for their match. And then Scott Hudson interviews Arn Anderson. He's going to be the referee for the main event. He says, no one is ready for what Nash is going to unleash on them when he's in charge of the company. Of course, this is a great promo from Arn. Arn, like, slips up, like, at the beginning of this. And then he pauses for a second, looks at Scott, and says, that's how emotional I am about this. That I, I never mince my words, but goddamn. We are, we're about to lose everything. And I'm like, man, you're so good. Oh, man. I just, I feel like he's, Arn Anderson has been so underutilized as an on-screen talent since his, like, the fact that he really, ne- they never played an on-screen character in WWE. And, you know, after, Co- after Cody left AEW, they never used him again. I think just feels wrong. He just uh, what, a, what a great commissioner he would have been. He just radiates quiet authority in a way yeah. that you want commissioners to do. You know, like when he shows up, you know, the shit's going to go down and like he could whoop some ass if he really wanted to. But also he's sympathetic. Like he's everything packaged up that you want. It's great. I do love the idea that like, yeah, we had this whole storyline where you were going to be the ref. So you're still going to be. But like your whole issues with Brett. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Just have some fun out there, I guess. Instead, you get to... Re- well, I guess he was going to be refereeing the match for Sid, the guy who stabbed him, no matter what. <laughs> That's a good point. All right. World title time. Sid Vicious versus Chris Benoit. Benoit out first to, honestly, a pretty mid-reaction. I do want to say this. 
his entrance, the way it's laid out here, I don't know what his original music was, but the way it's laid out here with like the lighting that they do and he comes out, he's got his look right. He's basically yeah. WWE Chris Benoit now. He looks good. Yeah. Like I can see main eventer in him here. Like for he's, the very first time. Yeah, and he's still young enough that he's kind of like young and studly. Uh, in WWE, he always kind of just looked like a really buff dad. Yeah, when he started like losing his hair and it's like like he had the gap tooth and like he got inflated yeah. more with muscles. Yeah, he looked a lot older. Here, yeah, he looks incredible. He comes out. I'm just like, you know what? If he hadn't managed to stay here for another year, I think they could have made it work with him big time. And then holy shit when Sid comes out. Guys, we talk all the time about these Sid reactions that he gets. And like, obviously we're huge Sid marks. So like we make a big deal about him every time, but it just doesn't matter. There hasn't been a single like cheer on this entire show. I feel like there's been nothing to cheer for. There's been nothing to cheer for. The fans have sat on their hands for two and a half hours. Now Sid comes out and they fucking explode. And Sid is playing to the crowd, which is super endearing. I've literally never seen him do that. Where he like points at the guys and then he gives yeah. them the big fist bump. I'm like, oh man, that's so good. He's got this like almost like he's doing like almost the Hogan cup in the ear thing as he's like stirring the crowd up. Like this is almost like a childlike side yeah. to Sid that we've never seen before. He's like playing a real actual baby face. And that's the answer to this game, ladies and gentlemen. Somehow, the one true baby face on this program is Sid Vicious. Psycho Sid Vicious. Maybe the first time he's ever portrayed a baby face ever in his career for real. Yeah. And it's working. Yeah. Michael Buffer does the introductions for Benoit, Sid, and Arn. And then he hands the mic to Arn for referee instructions. Nice. Arn talks about how Funk just spilled his blood to defend the company. He asks that they give everything they've got to put on the show the fans deserve and be a deserving champion. One, this was brilliant. Two, I think referee instructions should be standard for a world championship match. Absolutely. Like, I don't see why you couldn't. Like, obviously not every... uh... Yeah, they're not like all Arn ref- Anderson. But. Yeah, not every referee is like really capable of doing a promo like that, but I'm sure many of them are. Yeah, a cu- I remember an indie show from a couple of years back where I saw Tommy Young do this, and he did such a great job. He was just like, the marquee says wrestle. These fans are here to see you wrestle. They're not here to see me referee. Like, I'm going to stay out of the action, but I want you guys to put on a proper wrestling match tonight. That's just exactly what I want wrestling to be. Yeah. And and then whatever happens after that happens after that. But just like you should once you have these people in the ring, like they make their entrances, the ring announcers introduce them. You do the referee thing. It's the anticipation that is the draw. Like all the big boxing matches take like 25 minutes yeah. to get to the point. Literally, I timed it. The Tyson Fury fight that just happened, 45 minutes from the beginning of the entrances until they throw the first punch. 45. (laughs) But that's what you're there for. It can last a minute after that. You got the pomp and circumstance. You got the show. 
And then they hit another of my favorite tropes, which is they bring a bunch of wrestlers out on stage to watch the match. I did like this. Like, it's difficult to say that the stakes really felt worth it. But, like, if you're trying to put that over, I like that they did this. Just, like, one of these men is going to be the warrior that WCW follows into battle against the NWO. Going to lead us into this new era, this new millennium. That's cool. It and, was weird to have like David Flair and Crowbar out there. <laughs> and for a cold match, you got to do everything you can to try to make something out of it. Yeah, agreed. Sid just throws Benoit around early in the match, hits him with a massive press slam. Man, it must be so fun for Sid. Think about how seldom in his career he really got to wrestle small dudes. Like, this like this is like him wrestling Michaels, but even smaller. Way so yeah, I mean quite a bit smaller than Michaels. Although Benoit is so stocky and muscular, he's probably hard to lift. It's like picking up a boulder. Benoit turns the tie by attacking Sid's legs. He traps Sid's leg against the post and drop kicks the steps into it. Uh, back in the ring, Benoit puts him in the figure four, and then. He transitions into the Muda lock. Didn't expect to see that. That was very surprising. Sid fires up. Benoit cuts him off with a drop kick to the knee. Benoit goes for the rolling Germans, but Sid blocks and hits a power slam. Benoit once again goes to the leg and gets Sid in a leg lace. Sid makes it to the ropes. German suplex by Benoit. He signals for the diving headbutt. He hits it. Sid has the greatest kick out I've ever seen, as I swear he threw Benoit five feet in the air. This is fantastic. Like, I don't really know how guys do these kickouts where, like, you could just, it doesn't look like they push them, but somehow they still go flying. But, like, literally, he goes, like, above the top rope. (laughs) Sid chokeslams Benoit. He makes the cover. Benoit gets a foot under the ropes. Interesting that they do that to establish that right before the finish. Benoit digs his own grave. It's also interesting that, like, so they didn't tell Benoit that Sid was going to do what he's going to do, right? Do we agree on that? That's why, that's the, that's what Kevin Sullivan says. Sullivan outright says it was double cross. Well, I'm glad he's honest about it. Yeah, he says he told Sid to put his foot under the ropes, both, like, to potentially set up a rematch, but also because they weren't sure if Benoit was going to, you know, stick around, which that's the insanity of putting the title on Benoit here. You would think you would get him to agree. You'd be like, okay, we'll put the belt on you, but you're staying, right? But they didn't do that. They just gave him the belt, even though he had threatened to quit that day. Yep. Benoit gets Sid in the crossface and Sid taps out. Sid's foot was under the ropes. The camera clearly shows it. And like I said, Sullivan says, first, let's reflect on how insane it is that given the era of wrestling he came up in and his the size differential here, that Sid does a straight-up job for Benoit here by submission. And again, we just talked about how like Hardcore Holly got to beat Sid clean, too. Sid is apparently not a man who minds doing jobs. Which is bizarre. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, So then we we go backstage. 
Gene interviews Benoit. Benoit cuts maybe the best promo of his career as he talks about being a fan growing up, breaking into the business, how he overcame all the doubters and proved them wrong. Arn shows up to shake his hand. Somehow they managed to shoot this to make Benoit look taller than Arn, which is an achievement. I don't know what they did here. It's like diagonal shot. Just to like, we got to make him look taller, damn it. Like Arn Anderson is probably 6'3", although with his back problems, maybe he's shrunk, but... Chris Benoit might be 5'10", maybe. Although Benoit, yeah. he's, got li- he's got lifts in his boots, so he might be six foot with his lifts. It's just funny because, like, Benoit might be, aside from, like, Billy Kidman, the smallest person on this entire show. Yeah. Um, Nash shows up. He tells Benoit to enjoy the belt while it lasts because the NWO is going to get it back. I think they were actually seeing this. I think they were always going to strip Benoit because it makes total sense for Nash as the heel commissioner to come in and take the belt away from Benoit. And then he can chase it, which is a much better storyline anyway. That is interesting to do like a dusty finish just to establish Benoit as a real player to be like he could win the world title. But I don't. I still don't think. Maybe him beating Sid with a roll up makes it less bad. It's just truly bizarre to see Sid tap out literally to anyone, much less to an upper mid Carter who's not established. Yeah, and that is a wrap for this bizarre, disastrous show. We've gone long, so I'll spare you the what happened the next night. We'll talk about that next week. But what we won't spare you is Stump Steve, baby. God, the WCW title in 2000. Not the WCW title. Well, not just the WCW title. You see, when Chris Benoit won the WCW World Heavyweight Championship here, he triggered part of a legacy that would continue on into his time in WWE, where he is one of the very few men ever to win the Triple Crown in both WCW and WWE. In fact, there are only three men that ever did that. And I would like to know the other two. Okay. Triple crown means intercontinental United States tag tag world world. Okay. And you have to have done it in both the WWF and the WCW. Yes. This does not count when WWE had the WCW titles. That is not real. Okay. Well, it's appropriate that I called it the WCW because one of the guys who did it is Bret Hart. Bret Hart is correct. That is one of the guys who did it. Who else did this? Tag titles, world title, U.S. title. The one and only hint I will provide you with is that that individual is working for WCW at this time. At this time? All right. I mean... Um... I have a good guess. Ric Flair has to have been WCW tag champion at some point. He just has to have been. Does he? Does he? Because here's the thing. I actually can't picture him with the tag belts. And I can't think of who he would have won them with. Because it would have been some bullshit 
in like 99 or 2000. Right. Like maybe won it with David or something. But did he is the question. <sighs> there's so few people it can be because there's re- when you think about it, there's really not that many people who were both the WWF champion and the WCW champion. It's kind of a very few. few. Yeah. I mean, you got Benoit who only I mean, didn't really even officially win the WCW title. But they do count it officially yeah. in the lineage, so he did do it. But uh, and technically, he won the same belt again when he won the, the World Heavyweight Championship he in WWE. <laughs> the world title, yeah. So he didn't win the WWE Championship, but it's still we're still counting that as the Triple Crown. Rick Steamboat never won the WWF tag titles, so that holds him back. He also never won the WWF title. Oh, good point. Didn't think about that. Mm. I don't feel like I can justifiably drag this on any longer, so I'm going to say Ric Flair. The answer is not Ric Flair, unfortunately. The answer is young Booker T. Oh, that's right. Wait. Booker T wasn't the WWE champion. He was the world heavyweight champion. Again, Chris Benoit Mm -hmm. was also not the WWE champion. That's a good point. That's that's still considered a triple crown. Okay. Okay, we're counting the world heavyweight title in WWE. I I apologize. I probably should have specified on that. However, yes. (laughs) Because here's the thing. If we counted the WWF, if we counted the WWE United States title, then the big show did it too. Is I believe the Big Show holds the record of holding the most belts, Pierre, the most different belts. Yeah, he is the only triple world champion, WCW, WWE, and ECW. Ever. I mean, the only one to hold those three titles. Other people, I feel like other people have held three different world titles. Yeah, Rick Flair be was one for another Rick time. Flair, Rick Flair was NWA, WCW, and WWF champion. That is a good point. Maybe that's one for another time. How many three-time world champions, different promotions can you name? But anyway, that's for another time. This one, I escaped with my $10 intact. You did, in fact, stump Steve. (laughs) I cannot believe Ric Flair was never WCW Tag Team Champion. It seems insane insane. now that you say it, yeah. Like, given the length of time he was in the company, how much he was on top. No, when I thought about it, I'm like, I can't ever remember it. And his WWF tag team title reign was like, it was like him and Piper were the tag team champions in 2006. Well, him and Batista were too. That's right. Forgot about that. Yeah. Though I think that was like the world tag team titles instead. Whatever. We're not going to get caught up on that, but yeah, it does seem like he should have had a title reign with like David at some point. Right. But then they ran, they rushed that storyline so fast that they never really got there. Yeah. That's like the only thing they ever would have. Cause back when he was in the horseman, he wasn't going to be competing in the tag division. No, just make him belt collector flair. (sighs) Him and Arn, I think were supposed to have a tag match with, doom at starcade but he was pulled out of it because uh he had to be the black scorpion instead oh god yeah all right this show <laughs> How, I mean, it wasn't as bad as i thought it would be it was not good but 
I didn't hate it. I definitely said there's worse to come. Let me just say this. Our kind of mission statement as a podcast is that there's so much negativity out there in terms of wrestling. Everything's just an endless pissing contest of negativity and irony and blah, 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 blah. We try really hard to be like a beacon of positivity for the most part because we love wrestling. We love these old shows. We find things to love in them. But this season's going to be a lot more about us just bashing the shit out of stuff that's hilariously bad. And I'm loving this shit so far. It feels like a vacation. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So next time we are going to cover um, Super Brawl 2000, the bizarre next chapter in this story. Somehow things are going to get much, much worse in the weeks after this. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you think so it could get worse, but the entire mid card quits the next day. I'm trying to imagine, think about like what, what like the WCW thing that I've never seen is. And you know what? I've never seen Yappa Pie. And Yappa so, like, pie. I'm very excited for some other things in here that I'm going to be like, oh, I've only read about that. <laughs> the Yappa Pie Indian strap match. Is it uncensored? Yeah, bye-bye. So, yeah, we'll have all that and more next time on the Lawcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next time.